I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. I've been trying to get some folks from Australia on the show for the longest time, and we're in luck today, folks. So, Tom, would you do the honors and introduce our guest? Yes, absolutely. Daryl, Annie, thank you so very much for being on the show. And we chatted for, <clears throat> excuse me, for just a little bit before uh, before recording. So, um, and really today's episode is going to be kind of an open forum you can ask questions you can um but what i'd like to start off with is a couple things number one absolutely the encounter the the sighting that you you guys had and then after that um maybe we could talk a little bit about how the topic is perceived in australia and um how it's dealt with so um, yeah, let's we'll, we'll we'll dig in. Start from the beginning. Well, hello, and thank you for having us. We're very honoured. Um, our sighting was two years ago in April, which is autumn in Australia. We were travelling north on the coast highway on a return trip from a, a camping trip we we had, and. It was in an area that's about 30 kilometres outside of a place called Coffs Harbour, or Yurunga, actually, and it's a place called Newry State Forest we were driving through. It, it was a, It's a split highway, so you had two lanes and then there's a section in the middle of bush and then two lanes going the opposite direction. Uh, it, was a, it was about 8 o'clock in the evening, it was a very dark night, a very wet night, and we were towing a trailer and we were doing about, about 100 kilometres an hour and we came across a very slight left turn in the road and we came across something that was on the road and we had to swerve and miss it. <laughs> And it was it was a funny thing. It was one of those moments where I knew what I saw and I just looked over at Daryl and said, what did you see? <laughs> and what did you say? I've, um, I've had a lot of experience driving. I know what a cow on the road looks like, a horse or an emu. But my brain went into electric mode. <laughs> I had never seen anything like this before. So when Anne asked me what, what did I think it was, I just simply replied, that had to be a Yowie. Yeah, that, and it, it was an incredible moment. Before I go in and describe what we saw, because it was um, 
a, a single lane part of the, the highway, we, we couldn't stop. Um, we couldn't pull over. We were towing a trailer. We only just missed it. Um, and there was nowhere to pull over. We couldn't turn back because it was um, a split highway. Um, we, we've copped a bit of criticism for that um, from uh, the, the site we originally posted the account on. But what we saw was a he had his back to us. It was like he was crawled up in almost a fetal position. Um, he had like corn-coloured, pale, blondie, gingery hair and all we could see was the back mass. So we saw the shoulders which tapered down to the rear and it was like everything was tucked up in front of him. Uh, we estimated the shoulders would have been about 900 millimetres high or three foot high. Uh, the length of the torso going by the width of the, the road, we estimated was one and a half metres long, which is about five foot. Um, we were asked what we thought maybe the overall height of the thing was, and my husband thinks it would have been about two, 2.4 metres tall or about eight feet tall. So his head was in the, the centre of, we were in the left lane, his head was in the centre of the road, tucked up. So he was right, he would have been lying on its right hand side. It had quite longish hair. Um, I thought about 100 millimetres, what's that in inches? Uh, four inches. About four inches long and it was, it was, it was moving. It wasn't dreadlocky. It was quite, quite flowing, and you could see the the power in the shoulders. And it, it was just huge. It was just huge. Um, I um, I'm just wondering that because there's truck drivers encounter yowies quite a lot, and I would have thought that this Yowie had been crossing the road and probably got clipped by the bull bar on the truck, was knocked down, and because he was laying down on the road, I would have thought that he would have heard our car coming, and that's possibly why he might have curled himself up a little bit in waiting for the impact, perhaps, which never came, thankfully. We, we were very lucky we didn't hit it because it would have taken us out. It would have been terrible. And because it was a wet night, we couldn't see any blood on the road. I couldn't see any damage to the, the part of the animal that we saw. And the other thing was as soon as we passed it, because it was a dark night, we couldn't see, I couldn't look back and see anything, so I, I couldn't even see, as I'm peering, because it was on my side of the car, the passenger side in Australia, and I couldn't see anything, I couldn't couldn't see anything, so all we saw was that, that back view, that was all we saw. There was not a lot of traffic on the road at 8 o'clock at night, it was, it was a Thursday evening, there uh, wasn't a lot of traffic, there were, were a few trucks on the road that night, but not a lot of 
car traffic. Mm. Um, but it, 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 even though we were in the car and protected in the car, it was very unnerving. It was, it was very frightening. And to be honest, if we could have pulled over safely and had a look at what it was, I don't know I would have got out of the car. <laughs> that's, that's how we felt. It was, it was quite an unnerving thing to, to see. We understand that um, if you see one, there's probably more. Yeah. And we thought about it in retrospect that um, it may not have been a good thing to even stop and investigate anyway. Mm. So this thing looks like it was, you think it was injured, probably seriously injured. Do, do, do you know the thought has crossed my mind that whether it had something in front of it, whether it was holding on to something and protecting it, that's, that is an impression I had of the situation. Um, what Daryl thinks happened was that it's possible it was just clipped by the side of a truck enough to to throw it into the onto the road. That's the impression you got. That's wasn't the it? way I felt about it. Yeah. I, uh, yes, I, I because the trucks do uh, encounter them quite frequently. How do you guys find out about? The trucks that encounter these things. Our son-in-law is a truck driver, yeah. and none of them admit it to each other. It, it's it's a funny thing here. We we don't tell too many people that story that we just told you because the looks you get. I don't know if it's an Australian thing or a Yahweh thing, but. They they look at you like you've got two heads. They they give you a look and they don't want to talk about it. But we've we have mentioned it to a, a couple of friends that we know live in uh, Yowie areas, and they'll 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 look at you like you're nuts. And then then they say something usually along the lines of, "Oh, that's funny. Some and so we know had a similar story." And then they just laugh. <laughs> so they think we're all nuts. <laughs> And the area that in which they live. Uh, here's a thought. Mm. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. The area in which so, the bows live is uh, is called Yowie. The the neighbouring yeah. property used to be called Yowie. That's <laughs> and and it, they live in an area. These these were the friends we were visiting on the way the way back from this this trip. So they there are only about an hour, an hour and a half south of where we saw this. And um, after we, we told them this, they then got talking to some of their farming friends and they've all got stories, just that nobody nobody sort of accept, accepts them as... When you look up Yowie on the internet, you'll get the same thing. It's described as a mythical creature. That's what it's described as. So if you say you've seen a Yowie, all people think of is, well... It, it's it's always been a mythical creature. It's very much an Aboriginal uh, part of their culture, and they have a lot of m myths in their culture, and they just lump it all along with with that. Um, but they they uh, white man has been in Australia since the late seventeen hundreds, 
And I think the first recorded sighting is around 1790. They were, they were known by settlers to be a problem. The, the Aboriginals talk about them, and I know there's a community in North Queensland where they, their, their, their folklore says that they have their people always interacted with them and lived with them. Um, not always happily, but they, they lived together, they shared hunting areas, etc. Um, Australia's a big place um, with not a huge population. It, it, you mentioned this, Will, on your one of your last programs, that when you transpose a map of Australia over the United States, that there's not a huge amount of difference. We are smaller, but the width of the country is nearly identical. But only 80... 80% of our population, we've got 26 million people, only about 80% of live just on the coastal fringes. And the middle of Australia is, is very arid. As a continent, Australia is the driest inhabited continent in the world. Um, and 70% of it is either arid or semi-arid. So as far as our forested area goes, the main area it covers the east coast of Australia, which is called the Great Dividing Range, and it goes from north Queensland right into Victoria, and I think it covers an area of about uh, 2,500 kilometres, and that's pretty dense bush. And we live uh, near the scenic rim, which is uh, some very heavily wooded areas near us. Okay, so I got a question. If, um, let's say this thing did die, okay, heaven forbid, and it was died on the road, yeah. um, what, I'm just going to ask for your speculation a little bit, what do you think, how would it be dealt with? Is there a park service or national rangers, uh, law enforcement, <clears throat> who would come in, who do you think I might come in and deal with the, with the, uh, with the body? Well, say if we pulled over and it was dead, we would have called the police. That's who, That's the go-to. You, you're in triple zero and you'd get put onto the, the police. We do have rangers. We have park rangers. Our organisation in Australia is National Parks and Wildlife. And uh, a friend of ours that lives only a couple of minutes down the road, she had a situation in her backyard. She backs onto a creek. She's on, we're, we're in suburbia, she's on like a, a small rural block. And they had a situation where the neighbour found a kangaroo that had had the limbs torn off it. And they were very upset by this. And they phoned uh, National Parks and Wildlife. And National Parks and Wildlife, when they, when they came out to get, to have a look at the body of this kangaroo, the, the kangaroo had gone. Um, they did take photos of it. I've, I've not seen it. But apparently they received uh, and some sort of correspondence, probably an email from National Parks and Wildlife, and they acknowledged that there were creatures or I can't remember the word they used, whether it was creature or beast in our forest area that are quite dangerous. Um, so if, if this kangaroo had been taken out by a a wild dog. We we have dingoes. Uh, not a lot that I know of in this area, but they're, they're there. That's our native dog, and they very often uh, crossbreed with other farm dogs and 
you'll get you'll get these nasty dogs that are not domesticated that are pretty aggressive. Um, so they sort of acknowledged without saying yowie, they acknowledged that they know there's there's something in the area other than what <laughs> is in our normal consciousness. Um, but it, with with the the one that we saw, say say if it was dead, uh, I'm I'm tipping the the police would have been called, and um, they would have dealt with it. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the uh, kangaroo. It was dismembered, right? Arms yeah, or just the, the 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 they've got their arms at the top. They they were like pulled off it. And um, something was uh, on the head was was mutilated, like the ears. And and these this friend's neighbours just thought it was something horrible that someone had done to the animal, and that's why they called the authorities. Um, but it it fits in with other stories I've heard from um, North America, where yes. um, animals are mutilated uh, and then maybe come back for or whatever. That is, that is exactly right. And Will, we talked to TW. He's a law enforcement, uh, I believe he's a deputy down in the southwest of, of the United States. And he just, excuse me, he did a little bit of research on what it takes to even dismember a dog or any kind of a, you know, like a person or, or you know, there's an incredible amount of, you know, the tendons and, and the muscles yeah. and everything that holds all, you know, our bones together, holds us together. It's very, very strong. So the ability to simply go and rip it apart is, you know, a person can't do that. No. A person, no. And, and that was the impression I got when they recorded, told us about this animal that uh, a dog would not have been able to do that. It would take uh, something with quite incredible strength, more than a human. And kangaroos, they're a lot more muscular than you think. We've got lots of different types of kangaroos, and, and some of them are, are very large animals, and they've, they've, they've got a very powerful front muscle system. Um, they're, not, they're not little, cute, fluffy little things. You actually have to be very careful with them. They, they can kill you. Um, so, well, that was my thought was if a person tried this, um, you know, the kangaroo might be returning the favor rather quickly. Yes. They, they, even a smaller kangaroo or some of our wallabies, that, I'm not sure about wallabies, but the, the, even the kangaroos, they can disembowel you. They, they've got the ability to put all their weight on their tail and then use their powerful legs to strike you. And they, they can literally disembowel you. Um, Daryl's brother uh, lived on an island near Brisbane and a fellow brought home as a pet a baby Joey um, and had it as a pet and when it when it got to of mature age and it got a bit frustrated with no other kangaroos on the island it turned on him one day and literally disemboweled and killed him so I'm not saying this happens all the time but it, it is possible that's why we use the boxing kangaroo to take the America's Cup. <laughs> right. We won't, we won't go there. <laughs> the, one, the one time we won it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Daryl, are you a sailor? Uh, yes, uh, a, a um, casual sailor. Same here. Same here. I love yeah. sailors. 
a wonderful place to be. It's it's a good yeah. place to live because we we're not far from the water, and where we lived in Brisbane was um, on a really beautiful bay system. So we used to have a little twenty four footer um, swing keel that we used to we could right. go out on for three weeks. It was wonderful. But I di I digress. <laughs> well, okay, so I want to get back to this kangaroo. So he, it was, he, she, it, whatever, it was, it was, it was dismembered. Front, yes. uh, upper arms were dismembered without the use of tools, no, you know, no cut marks. And if it had been dogs or dingoes, the thing probably would have been, you know, savagely just shredded, I would imagine. So the question I have is, you said it was... <clears throat> The arms are torn off, and something was done to the ears or the head. Yes. Okay, but it, did it look like, or did you know, if it looked like it was killed for, uh, you know, for prey, for food, or for maybe some other reason? It 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 was just the whole thing was strange. It 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 didn't sound like any other normal situation you'd come across with that, did it? It just sounded odd. The, the Yowie is known to be fairly secretive here. They don't like contact with humans and very likely he took the limbs, I would say, and uh, and then came back later on for the, the rest of the animal to take it away. We, we live on a river here um, and the river goes right, right down to the coast, obviously. Um, so... It weaves in and out of suburbia, but all these areas are, are connected with bushland. Um, once, once I was aware of a few things, uh, where, where we used to live um, in northern New South Wales, we lived on a farm for four years, and I, I came across things. We, how many acres was that? It was only about 22, 20, yeah, yeah. 20 25 acres. Um, we came across tree breaks. We came across uh, teepee structures. Um, I know what they are now. Back then, I didn't know what they were. Um, we were up in a, the hills from here, which is only about 15 minutes down the road from us, a place called Beachmont, and we came across these tree breaks. And the breaks, there were two trees about a metre apart. They were about... what. What was the diameter of the tree? Six inches, 150 mils. Yeah, they were, they were decent saplings. And the break was about six foot in the air. At least. And they were identically broken, pointing the same direction, 90 degrees. I took a photo. Um, and so you, I'm aware of these things now that I know a little bit more about um, their, their activity. You, you, you sort of... Um, Come, come across these things quite often, even in the scrubby bushland that is in suburbia. You can you can see things and you just wonder how, how close they come in. This friend with the kangaroo situation, around that same time when we were visiting, she said, come and look at this. She's got a beautiful garden, uh, a really beautiful tropical or sub, subtropical garden, lots of palms, lots of ground covers. And there were two areas in her garden that had been Trampled isn't the right word. It looked like something large had slept there. That's what it looked like. It was it was all pressed down, compact. Something big and heavy had slept there. Um, it only happened uh, for a couple of nights, I'm I'm guessing, 
And I said to her, she has a dog. I said, what did what did your dog do? And she said, no, those two nights he went berserk, so bad he had to bring him inside. And he's he's not a barker. He's a big dog, but he's he's a docile dog. And the other thing, I, I walked around the property and the other thing I saw was um, she has a fence, just a, a low fence that goes down to the, the creek area. And on this side of the fence, there was like a clay area. This is what I wanted to ask you. Um, do you know of them scratching in clay or eating clay, anything like that, maybe for mineral deposit or something like that? Because this section, it had been raining so it was it was reasonably soft, but there were there were large not claw marks finger marks in this area, like it had been gouged out. It wasn't like a dog had dug it. It was like a couple of very big hands had scraped out this area and scooped it up. Well, <laughs> yes, absolutely, and. Um... Will, do you want to jump in? This is your this is your thing. <laughs> well, I found that exact thing just north of me here a few years ago. Uh, oh. long. It was in kind of. Um, oh, it wasn't really wet. Well, it was. It was kind of a, one of these streams, you know, that run intermittently throughout the year, and it was mostly dried up. And a and a witness took me up to his location, and I was searching the area and and near this uh, dried up stream where the clay was still moist, uh, there was about a four-foot section where there were four very clear finger marks that were about, oh, probably an inch or so wide and about an inch deep in this clay that just they just dragged their fingers through it. Uh, I've seen some other finger markings similar to that, but that was probably the most dramatic one. I... Yeah, well, that's a comfort. I thought it might have just been my overactive imagination. The the, the most the the other thing is um, like I'm quite intrigued with the shape of the, the faces because from what I gather, we 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 seem to have two types. We've got a little guy, and we've got the, the one that looks like um, you know your your Sasquatch, you know the the type one, uh, the patties. Um, that's that's what we seem to have here um the the i had did hear of a of a story of the neighboring suburb to here and this is something that happened 20 years ago and that's something else that that i find intriguing is that there's a lot of stories just starting to come out now from a long time ago like 20 30 40 plus years ago because people weren't going to tell them but this is was of a couple of girls that lived in the neighboring suburb and they were coming home late one night when they had a pretty scary encounter with something, but it had the pointed face um, and sharp-looking teeth. Um, we had about two years ago, 18 months, two years ago, we had an account that actually appeared in the local paper, the Gold Coast Bulletin, and it was of a truck driver who was driving at a place called Canungra, which again is only about 15 minutes down the road from us. And he thought a boulder, we, we get a little bit of landslide movement on some of these roads, and he thought a boulder was running down this, the side of, you know, the, 
the hill to the road. So he, he put the brakes on and the boulder landed in front of his truck and then the boulder stood up. <laughs> so it wasn't you got boulder. funny boulders over there. Yeah, we, got, we have interesting things here. Um, but he, he estimated that when the thing stood up in front of the truck, he could see its navel and that navel was six feet off the ground. And then he estimates the height of his truck is about 10 feet. And this thing was, he reckons, was 11 feet tall. And it's funny how he describes it. It's a really interesting account to read because he he describes the face, he describes the build, and he's a real Aussie, Aussie truckie, but he actually describes it as a magnificent creature. He describes how beautiful it was. But apparently the thing, when it stood up and eyeballed him through the windscreen, the guy had to... to, to, to the thing had to duck to make eye contact with this guy that was driving. And he said his, his first expression that he would describe on this Yowie's face was contempt, like a bit of embarrassment and then contempt. That really tickled me. I thought that was hilarious. This, this, this Yowie was embarrassed that it had rolled down a hill. <laughs> And, and, and met up with this truck and apparently it slammed its hands on the top of the truck and then walked off. About 11 feet tall, that's huge. Oh, it's immense. It's absolutely huge. And so, hang on, this guy describes it as beautiful. Yeah, magnificent was his word. He magnificent, okay. creature. But it's smacked the top of his truck, and it's 11 feet tall. Yeah. I would be like, I would imagine that he would be, most people would be magnificently uh, terrified. That is the proverbial <laughs> underwear-changing moment. <laughs> well, when he was asked, did you tell anyone? He said, no. He said, I didn't even go home and tell my wife. And he didn't tell his wife for something like a year. Because I, this this always amuses me where people say, especially in a place like Australia where a lot of our bushland is, you, you don't want to go in there. There's, there's not a lot of trails. You don't just go for walks in there. You drive through it, but you don't go for walks in there. It's It's pretty rugged stuff. And to think that, people can look at these vast areas and think we know everything that lives in there is, is, is I think, incredibly ignorant. You know, the treatment of the topic actually is, you know, a lot of ways, everything you've said today, it, it kind of mirrors what's going on over here, you know, both the behavior of the creatures and, to a large extent, the response from people who don't believe will and i've talked about this <clears throat> you know i've i've run into people when you bring up the subject they just they get angry they get just oh you know and it's it's as if they don't want to be associated with some silly tabloid uh topic i i, I don't know uh, a lot but that just seems to be a kind of a 
deep guttural response. And it, it sounds the same over in yeah, Australia. I, I would say that is exactly what it is here because our son-in-law used to um, work for a logging company and it was his job to pick up loads of, what was it, pine? Yeah, pine logs. Yeah. From plantations. And when we told him we saw this yaoi, he, he actually said to us, I know you saw something. You know, and that, that's, that's a common response from people that know you well. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you saw something. And it's like, we know what we saw. We know what we saw. And I said to my son-in-law, I said, when you were out in these areas, did you ever see anything? And he went a bit quiet and he said, no. And I said, did you ever sense anything? And he really reluctantly admitted there were many times when he was out in the bush that he would run to his truck because he just had the feeling something was watching him. You know, it's funny. He wants to, it sounds like he wanted to, well, I know what you think you saw, but let me tell you what you really saw. And, Will, I don't know. I don't know if you remember or not, but um, we had a guy named Dalton on about a year and a half, almost two years ago. Right. Uh, Ex-military, ex-army uh, you know, guy. <laughs> and he, he made a comment. He said, you know, I'm if somebody wants to come up to me, because this one he had is, he had, he'd seen one of these things. If they want to come up to me and say, well, I know... <clears throat> Let me tell you what you really saw. He said, I'm willing to sit in jail for a few days for that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is, you know, it's like, oh, really? You weren't there, but now you're going to tell me what I saw? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. And, and when you say, look, well, I've seen one. So that's my proof. I've seen one. I know they exist. Um, and then people will say to you, oh, oh, yes, but, you know, there's no real proof. There's no proof. <laughs> I've seen one. There's proof. <laughs> All right. There is so we got to judge. Sorry. There is one aspect about it uh, here in Australia. Um, we do have a, a, um, a culture in, in some who love to go out shooting in the bush, mainly for pigs, feral pigs. And I don't like the thought of them actually getting the idea that they'd go out and shoot one of these uh, these creatures. Um, it is it is so sad to think of that. It, um, well, our, I think our general position is on somebody who would just go out and shoot one of these creatures Will, correct me if I'm wrong, but that would be the person that would just, you never hear from him again. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not easy to, sh they're not easy to kill. And, um, but, okay, so getting back to what I want to ask is, because <clears throat> a little bit of just kind of an area of fascination with, with our audience is, what kind of stories and what's the general vibe or 
sense with, I mean, is there a community in Australia or a community that you're aware of that maybe it's a small community, but they're like, hey, listen, I hate to break it to you, but uh, we've seen it or, you know, the, they believe that the creature exists. Yeah. There, there's, unfortunately, if you Google Yowie or look up content on YouTube, there's a lot of well-meaning people that have got their little um, sites going full of not even half-baked content and it, it does it a disservice. Um, it, it makes it look like anyone that believes in a Yowie is a crackpot. Um, but we do, we have ones like Dean Harrison here uh, from Yowie Hunties and he's got a really great approach to it. He's only interested in um, proper content, uh, not, not, not anything sensational. So I think there's a growing uh, interest in it um there's a like I said earlier, there's a lot of people coming out to, with their stories of Yowies and their, their proper encounters. Like we just had a sighting, but you know they, they've had proper interaction with these things and and, and not nice. you know that you, you've got a very tiny element here that that thinks you know they're, they're, they're cute and cuddly and I will leave out some apples and bananas for it and make a friend of it. Um, you've got that side of things or you've got the others that, that really do try and have a proper scientific view of it. Um, and that's, I don't bother with the other rubbish. I, I really, at the moment, I've, I've really only uh, look at a, a couple of different sites just to keep up with what's going on. There's a few really interesting maps on the internet of Yowie sightings Um it, that's really, really interesting to see that the number of Yowie sightings that have, have been um, recorded over the years. Do you want to mention about the loss of child? Yeah. yeah. Well, I do wonder about the missing people side of it. Um, I am very careful on, on that. Uh but it seems logical to me that at least some of the disappearances we get in Australia in the bush um, could be attributed to an, a, a Yowie situation. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a, ca a bit careful well, talking anything like that. No, no, no. I, it's funny because I was just about to ask you that. I wanted, I wanted to back up a little bit and find out <clears throat> some of the stories that you heard of the that they're not so nice. And honestly, the people that have had genuine encounters with them here in the States, um, well, how many of them do we know have said they came up, they shook hands? Uh, but this is just the most wonderful thing. I can't wait to see another one. Not, um, any, not <laughs> any that I can think of. <laughs> not a single one. Not, a not one. one of those. <laughs> no, hands down, they are... It's a life-changing moment. It really is. It, there's just something about it. And what that, you know, that trucker said. You know, behaviorally, they're very similar in Australia to the creatures we have here in North America. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, isn't it? That, that there's a common thread 
you know, different continents, common thread, behaviour, looks. You mentioned that it's um, it's a thrilling experience. It's life changing for me because I have no doubt in my mind what I saw. Yeah. It is. It. I couldn't relate it to any animal that I thought of. And I, I, my mind went through. Is it something that fell off a truck? No, <laughs> it wasn't. That was where I went because it was a big lump on the road, and I thought, well, something's happened here. But then, as we went, as we passed it, I, I just had to admit, no, this was something quite different from the regular animal. Uh, it was an animal. And uh, so, as far as I'm concerned, I have seen one. There's a there's a place in northern New South Wales we lived not far from when we lived on that farm. It's called Woodenbong, and it's a real hot spot. And the locals uh, are a little bit freer about talking about their experiences with them. Um, and some of it's quite nasty, you know, killing dogs and things like that. Um, but the, in that little community, they have no doubt they exist and they live with them. Um, it, it'd be wonderful if you get to talk with, with some of these people that have had proper encounters um, because they, they have to live with them and be very careful with them. Yeah, that would we would love to have uh, as many of those who would be interested in contacting us. We'd love to hear from them. And, um, yeah, I just want to back up for a second when you talk about you know, they, they kill dogs. Um, we, uh, Will, you remember Kevin? And there was a guy named um, oh, I can't, Lee. Lee was a gentleman that you knew up in California. And he saw one of these things. It took about, it was killing a, a fawn, a deer. And it took about, I believe he said it took about six minutes to... Yeah complete killing it and then we have another uh gal who's been on she lives in upstate new york and it she said one of these things killed a dog it took a long time to kill it and then i was out last year with uh, uh, a group and <clears throat> about 10 10 30 at night one of these things had obviously we didn't see it but it obviously gone up about 30 feet up a tree and it was I don't know if it was just wringing its neck or whatever but it was uh, it, I, I wrote it down I'm, you know just kind of made some notes afterwards it took about three minutes for it to kill this bird or just harassing a bird so it's like um, you know that's kind of you know most animals if they're if that's why I was asking about the uh, kangaroo because Sometimes there have been reports that these things seem to kill uh, for no apparent reason. Or maybe they kill it, leave it, and go after other ones, you know, with the intention of coming back. I, I have no idea. But uh, Is, That ties in with one of the wooden bong stories. Uh, the lady since passed away, apparently, but she had put out on her back veranda some apples to take to, the, I think, the compost heap or the, the chook pen, and she heard her dog, she had a smallish dog in the backyard whimpering and she went out and found a yowie and it, it had the dog in its arms and was just pressing it against its chest really hard. 
and she ended up screaming at the Yowie and the Yowie dropped the dog and ran off. But the the dog never recovered and she said the, the stink on the dog, the odour on the dog, she said she barfed that poor dog so many times and couldn't get rid of the stench of the Yowie off it. And then the dog eventually died from... So, so the Yowie was, was just crushing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because we have a guy that Will knows who's on one of the uh, Indian reservations in, uh, in Montana. And, Will, I think it's the Flathead Reservation, a gentleman's name, Wynn. But one of these things right. came out. Yeah, you, you know the story better than I do. He snatched an old man off the porch and the Indians went after him. They ended up killing the thing, but also didn't, I think the guy ended up dying from, from the, he succumbed to the wounds that the creature inflicted. No, on. no, actually they didn't kill the creature. They, they, it grabbed the old man off the porch and they gave chase and finally it, it let him go and took off. And the gentle, older gentleman eventually died of his wounds in the hospital. Yeah, that's, so wow. that's terrifying. Yeah, and I believe Will wasn't. It was just in the middle of the day, wasn't it? In yeah. front of people, it was midday. It was kind of a community, um, and, and there were some younger guys nearby, and it just brazenly came out and grabbed the old man off the porch. And uh, I guess fortunately for him, you know, the young guys were close by and, and chased it, but otherwise he would have just vanished, never been seen again. In, in your experience, do you feel that uh, civilization or urbanization has altered the uh, the relationship between humans and and uh, Sasquatch? Um, probably so. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody, especially here, you know, pushing into remote areas and, but. You know, their population here also seems to be on the rise. So there's definitely a dynamic, a different dynamic going now than there has been in the past. That's mm. yeah, a fascinating topic, no doubt about it. What do you know about the differences uh, between the small ones and the larger ones? What, what do you know about the little ones? The, the From what I gather, our friends down in... Um, Tari area, there's reports of the smaller ones there, and they are small. They're only about four or five feet tall, or compared to the, the giants. Um, they're darker and they're smaller. I, I've not heard any description of features or proportions of limbs or body. Um, and from what I've heard, Western Australia uh, has uh, a larger population of those. Um, so all I've heard, and you know, you know, I'm no expert, but all I've heard is the, of the two different types, and then the that account that I heard of the, the one that had more of the the pointed face. Um, that that's possibly a third type, but I don't know that that we've we've got much compiled on that. This this where, you know, if, if you talk to Dean Harrison, he he would be really up on all of that. Um, yeah, these these friends that own, own the farm, 
they had uh, friends that were out camping one night and they, they lit a fire and they were sleeping around the fire and two or three of these smaller ones came in and just just stood there looking at them. And, you know, typical reaction, nobody said anything. These yaois just walked off and then they just looked at each other and said, did you see that? Yes, I saw that. And that was sort of end of conversation. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 all I all I all I know of of that. But um, in areas like where we live, a, a lot more of the the bush area is is people are buying acreage and moving into acreage. Um, but there's still an awful lot of the Great Dividing Range. You, you can't even walk through; it's dense. You don't drive mm-hmm. through it. It's so I would imagine in Australia that you know whatever population we have could live very well secluded without needing to interact with anyone or anything. What, um, how long has the Yowie topic kind of been, um, I don't know, I don't want to say popular, but sort of, does it feel like it's sort of on the rise, kind of, you know, maybe more and more reports into the internet coming out, people... Yeah, very much. And, and considering we live in a, in a hot spot, people just don't talk about it. They, they don't, you don't get an evening at a dinner party where you all swap yaoi stories or people just, they don't like talking about it, they don't want to talk about it, they don't acknowledge the topic it exists. I think it's only relatively recently. I asked my daughter the other day, when you were growing up, what, what was your impression of the term yaoi? And she said, oh, always just a mythical creature, always. And I think it's only, like we, we had our sighting two years ago and it's only since then that I've I've looked up other things and because I know they exist now. So that I have an interest in it and I will, I will do my own little bit of research and become very interested in um, especially what Will is doing because of, how many years he's been researching them and I love the fact that the approach is a scientific one and very much takes into account the anthropology side of things that really interests me but in Australia I I would say it's relatively recently probably the last 10 years that some people are starting to take them a little bit more seriously we have got very well-known scientists in Australia we still will get on national TV and say, we know they don't exist because surely there'd be photographs of it. You know, surely, you know, there'd, there'd be more of this or that. And their argument's very, very lame. And that's what, I, what I'm curious about. I understand in the United States that there's a reluctance by the authorities to acknowledge that the Sasquatch exists. I I can't think of a government motivation in Australia for them not to acknowledge it. I don't know whether it's it, it's a political thing as because we're allies of the United States that the governments have agreed to not acknowledge them. I don't, I don't know, but I would be interested. To, to yeah, I I've been curious. I've I've asked myself the same question, and I came to the same uh, speculative conclusion or, or just theory that you know Australia you know you're part of the five eyes 
we're part of the five eyes and, and maybe there's that relationship. Um, but one of the, now here in America, uh, recently for the month of June, the we have uh, at a federal level, there's what's called the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And some states have their own Department of Fish and Wildlife and others just call it, uh, I think, Department of Natural Resources. Ohio, they have Department of Natural Resources. They're the ones who deal with the, the game and the animals and you know all that kind of stuff. They, last month, had a four-part series, one hour each, Zoom chat meetings talking openly about Sasquatch in, in Ohio. And I thought that was very interesting. Uh, a, it wasn't a one-off. One it was four complete, you know, and there, there's, there's some Q&A involved and that sort of thing. So I thought that was interesting. Maybe the Maybe that door is starting to open just a tiny crack. But, you know, one of, one of the, um, I think one of the analogies that I think of is when people, you know, you get people, uh, what was it, you said the, uh, the scientists in Australia, some of them will come out and say, well, we, we would have seen one by now or some kind of a lame uh, answer like that. Um, Tony, who's our judge, a friend of ours, been on the show many times, pointed out that if this is a criminal case, it would be a slam dunk. I mean, people have been put away for a whole lot less evidence. Here you have eyewitness reports, you have photographic evidence, you know, the film. And I was going to ask you, because here we have, you know, footprints is kind of a thing. You know, a lot of people can go out, you, you can get really good foot casts of these things. I didn't know if the is that are are there or is there anybody that or is there any ground that's conducive to making good foot casts in Australia? There is. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, there's some. I I have actually seen a photograph of um, a medium sized one walking through someone's backyard, mm -hmm. and it was treated as if it was a fabrication. Yeah. Right. The, the footprint thing too, like in the area we live in, there's a lot of little creeks and rivers um, and a lot of it is is rocky, but you, you will get the occasional sort of sandy patch that I'm sure you could see footprints if you were in an area and you, you could, could look them up. Um, but our friend that has the creek in her backyard you you couldn't see unless we'd had a lot of rain. You you, you probably wouldn't ever make out a, a footprint. Um, it, it it is quite like it's a lot. It's, it's very lush and pretty here. It's very green, but it, but in general, I don't know that we we have the consistent not rainfall or wetness in areas where where you, you would you would go into your backyard and see a see a footprint. Well. <clears throat> Yeah, and, and the reason I ask is oftentimes the people who um, dismiss the footprints as a hoax, and Will, we've talked about this, where they say, well, you know, maybe it's just a black bear and, you know, the whole foot-on-foot -foot overlap impression, which has been thoroughly uh, debunked. Well, I, I can tell you, 
you, you know, they say that in a line of bear tracks, and I've seen a lot of bear tracks here, lots of lines, um, that the overlap track occurs about every fifth um, set of tracks, right? But, you know, it's actually much more rare than that. But the thing people forget when they try to say that, you know, bear tracks are, you know, overlap sas or Sasquatch tracks or overlap bear tracks is bear tracks are only a couple feet apart. When you see the line of bear tracks, there's lots of bear tracks and they're close to each other. So you, you would never mistake that. Mm. Oh, I understand that. I appreciate that. And and some of the footprints that are found, you know, the, the first set that I found, um, they were in the forest floor where there's a lot of decaying pine needles. It's just the duff, you know, it's a very spongy floor. And it was down almost two inches. And it it was a very, it was probably an older track. You know, thinking back, it had some little stuff growing up out of it. Um, and somebody said, well... I think somebody just went out there and put that there. Okay, great. I'm 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 glad to hear that. So they went to an area and they put some footprints where they're almost certainly not ever going to be found. And this is and, and and the way they did it was they must have carried hundreds of pounds of lead weights with them and this <laughs> foot to I got to hand it to them. You know, that's that's some really creative people with a lot of way too much time in their hands. But, you know, the other analogy is for the longest time, for, I don't know, about 70 years, and it's, it's not a topic that I research, but it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting one, I guess, is the whole UFO topic. And for for forever, it was, well, you know, those, they, they don't exist. And... You know, the federal government here has kind of come out kicking and screaming and said, well, there's, you know, there is something there. So um, I'm like, OK, well, that there goes that argument. Yes. <laughs> and and our judge, um, he said, hey, look, you know, there's there's enough evidence out there that that we could put somebody away if it was a crime. Uh, and even John Green, I thought he had a real good quote. He said, look, if these things don't exist, then none of the evidence amounts to a hill of beans. But something is making footprints out there. And people are seeing something. <laughs> yes. You won't uh, see too many footprints here because the landscape in Australia is very firm. Mm. It's uh, a rocky soil and not a great deal of topsoil. Maybe in uh, our forests, uh, in our rather our tropical rainforests, that might be the case. But generally speaking, you won't find footprints. You'd have to um, you'd have to have jackhammers to to get through <laughs> the soil. But I, but I think some of the work that Dean's done in Springbrook, which neighbours onto where we live, uh, he has come across footprints. But that's a that's a lot more lush where he goes, you, you have to hike for a day to get into. It's, it's yeah. not a trip. You're just hiking in the middle of nowhere. And he, I think he, he's going to areas where, where it's a little bit more moist and there's a little bit more leaf litter or whatever. Um, but in, in general, like Daryl says, we, we don't have a lot of topsoil in Australia. I, I remember reading once that 
your average topsoil in the United States is something like three feet deep. In Australia, it's something like three inches. And there's not a lot of Australia where we can farm uh, because it's so arid. And, and you'll, you'll find that even in bushy areas, uh, which might have a little bit more average rainfall or, you know, shady, it's a little bit more lush, the ground is still very, very hard. It, it, it's tough having if you ever have to dig a hole. Yeah, being, okay. Um, being a retired builder, I know what it's like to dig foundations and, uh, and uh, at times you'd almost need dynamite. Yeah. Well, in one of the places we live, when they, when they put the sewerage through the area, they had to dynamite it out. It's how tough it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, this has just been an absolute treat for us, and it's just fascinating to hear this and, and the uh, repeating patterns that are happening both in Australia and what we see over here. Um, you know, we may like to have you guys back on again, and if you get any new information... Absolutely. You know how to get a hold of us, right? Will do. Okay. And it's been a, a real privilege speaking with you and having us on your show. Thank you very much. Yes. And re we do respect the work that you're doing. Yes. And uh, I'm sure that you would like to have more success with people, but um, at the moment, it's, uh, step by step. Mm. That's very true. And, and it's been a real pleasure having you both on. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you Likewise. again. Likewise. Yeah. All Thank right. you so much. Thank you. Now. All right, everyone. Stay tuned for the next segment. All right. Welcome back from the break, everyone. We have uh, quite the ensemble here. Tom, you want to... Uh, delve into this session yeah absolutely norma uh welcome back and fred thank you for coming on and mark welcome aboard uh new guest i don't have you been on before or this is uh, thank you no no i have not this is my uh first time on the podcast and, and second time uh, going out with with, with these uh this great group fantastic uh, well, listen, guys, we really appreciate you get, taking out the uh, time to, to do this interview. So, Norma, I'm going to let you kick it off. Kind of give us a little background on, you know, a little bit of a um, kind of the backdrop of what you and I talked about, what you've been experiencing. And uh, we'll just take it from there. Okay. Um, well, we were out on Saturday night. It was Fred and Mark and Bob and I, and we, when we got there, uh, Fred and Mark set up a, a game camp, which is something that we've never done before. And I forgot to tell you that too, Tom, when we talked, but we, uh, they set up a game camp just in case we were able to catch something. And I'm, I, Fred and I talked and I'm not sure, Fred, did you, find anything on that or did were um, you able I, to... I, I didn't I didn't check it yet but I'm gonna check it okay so that was something that we've never done before set it up then we got I got all the uh equipment ready and then um everybody got settled and 
in in for the long haul and we were there for the long haul so we pretty much uh had like I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's the century that's there and i've talked to you well about it and tom you know about this century and you can always it's 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 the same mo you know it's the, it's the same uh things that it does all the all the time when it's around us so we basically were sitting there for a while and it took us a good probably 10 minutes or 10 to 15 minutes before we actually settled down and everything was you know ready so <clears throat> as we were doing that about and i listened to the h2 the other uh was yesterday 25 minutes into our recording our van got hit with a rock and this was this was not a pebble <laughs> it was a good sized <laughs> rock <laughs> and it made a pretty good sound especially when you have the h2 right there. um so and it didn't skip it didn't like um get off the road you know and and hit the van like it did before this was definitely a direct hit so and fred when fred and mark were behind us uh up behind our vehicle and they were you know the, the, <laughs> after we got hit pretty much fred and mark got hit all the rest of the night so i told fred i think it was an oops and they meant to hit him you know just to make me feel better <laughs> but they just the kept getting continues. what's that the saga continues <laughs> the saga the saga continues every time yeah. fred goes yep hey guys i'm going to jump in for a second i got a question about these rocks so you know what time of night is this and do you have any lights i'm just trying to sort of paint a visual kind of a word picture of the scenario where you're at and do you hear it coming? Do you hear it crashing through the leaves and branches or just all of a sudden, pow, somebody gets hit? Um, when I was listening to it, when it hit the van uh, and I was listening back on the H2, I could hear a, a, a something coming through the, the trees, you know, um, and it would tick, 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 and then bam, it hit the van and you could hear it drop and then roll on the ground. Oh, this so is that, a big rock. It was a good, it was a good sized rock. I forgot to look at my van today. <laughs> I was going to go out there and look at it. Um, well, if I would you hear to, it roll on the ground, yeah. that's not a pebble. No, that's that wasn't a pebble. And sometimes we do hear the pebbles drop, you know, but we don't hear it necessarily, like unless it's a bigger one. And they have they have gotten hit with a little bit bigger pebbles than, you know, than just the little tiny ones that they're throwing. But this one definitely sounded like, I would have to say the size of probably a walnut. All right, that's not a little pebble. So we were like, we were like okay, <laughs> well, that was interesting. Um, and Bob, he, he wasn't sure that it was that actually you know uh the van got hit and i said yeah it definitely hit the van and so last night when i heard it and when i was going through it by myself and 
Bob was in the in our bedroom and he was just kind of going to bed and relaxing and getting ready to go to bed and I brought the H2 into into him and I said listen to this <laughs> so he heard it you know we heard it hit the van obviously live but when he heard it again he definitely was like oh yeah <laughs> that, that hit the van and it was a big rock so that was our first initiation Saturday night and then after that and we like I said we um we hear this thing around us all the whole entire night it doesn't wander very far from where we are as a matter of fact it gets closer usually as opposed to walking further away and i'm curious to to i I know that um guys uh fred and mark you guys heard that hit the van right absolutely yes we did so when I asked, I think uh, we we have two ways. So we have uh, walkies when we're when we're away from each other, and we always check in with each other. And <clears throat> I said to them, I, or I think um, I forgot what you said, Fred. One of, at some point, he's like, I think we have company. <laughs> uh, we heard not just you know after that rock throw after it hitting the van, we there was it seemed to be a lot of um, more, I guess, noise last night than it just kind of walking around. It does, when it's there, it does break twigs and sometimes a bigger branch will come down or sometimes, um, you know, do something weird, like sounds we don't even know where they're coming from, if if it's even from, you know, this, this century but we heard a lot going on last night and then again pebbles you know hitting fred's car he (laughs) a pebble would hit his car all right well here we go again and every time something would hit we'd hear it ping you know so it's it's not like it's hitting the ground it's not you know hitting a tree you can hear it actually hitting the metal of the car. You can hear that ping. And a couple of times there were, again, like I said, the, the rocks were just a tad bit bigger, not huge, not like the one that hit the van, but you could tell when it, when a rock was bigger, you could hear a bigger, you know, sound off the car. So it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, but Mark, and Fred, I mean, I haven't talked to you really much since Saturday. So I'd like to hear your take on what you guys were thinking. Well, yeah. Uh, for me, it was, it was shocking. You know, you we, when we arrived in, in that, that first, that initial uh, hit in your vehicle, the, the, it was just, it just jolts you because it just came like it was like wow right it was a large you can just tell it was not just like a little you know stone just just something that like just popped up or who knows right this this came in and it was like when it when it made contact it had a metal behind it and it just had that ping okay and then you know if you, after that what it, i would say what i call was like Few minutes, two minutes, and then it kind of like then transferred onto your car. Yep. Yes. 
And that's when, again, it was just like the, the size was diminished, but the frequency mm-hmm. seemed to have picked up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Very consistent. Exactly. Now, the yeah, last Mark. time. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask. So, Mark, this is your. Was this your first time out doing this sort of thing, or? This is my second. Second time, but it's it's a touch of reality when it's dark, it's pitch black, and bam, this is oh, something tangible yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's uh, how else can I say it? It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely eye opening. I'm like, it's just becomes real if that's if that's a good way to put it it's like okay like this is not normal like this shouldn't be happening at this time sitting here this is just just not normal you know shouldn't happen exactly you know um at at one point to got up i got out and they're looking around the car making sure that there was just nothing else uh like make sure there's nothing from the trees above. And no, it, it was just clear, right? It's just stones. For our for the audience out there, just to kind of help them uh, think through this. So there's what's what are the chances? What what's the percentage? What's the chance that you had somebody out there doing this? You're in a spot where maybe some camper saw you, but tell me that, uh, you know, give me a little bit of a background on it. Do you think there's anybody out there or is this just a very remote time and place for this? Limb to none. There's there's signs that say, you know, definitely no camping. Um, So could there be somebody out there? Sure. I would say probably definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, there. Um, I had spoken to you before, uh, Tom, that they didn't. This is basically primitive camping. So if anybody's up there, there's no bells and whistles, you know, happening in this in this area. It's pretty remote. You saw uh, from Google Earth when you looked it up that it's it's pretty good, pretty wooded. And and this very few at at very few people go up there as it is when it when they're allowing people to go up there and camp. First of all, you have to you know go through the state forest you know to get even be able to get into the the area that's camping. It's not like you can just go up there and camp. You have to. Uh, let the forest rangers know that you want to camp there. They have to know when you're camping there, what day. They want to know your license plate of your car. They want to know everything before you go in there. So it's not just you just go in there and pitch a tent. Um, That's what I wanted and, to find out. You, and you said that this area has been um, excluded. It's been there's there's no camping at this time. There used to be, but Current, is that right? Currently, there's camping is disallowed. That's right. Um, I don't know why they didn't allow camping this year. Um, 
I think I don't believe that they they allowed it last year because of the pandemic. But what surprises me is that they didn't allow it this year either because, you know, everything is opening up and people are doing mm -hmm. stuff like this. So I'm not quite sure why, um, you know, they didn't allow camping this year. So we have and I told you, I think one of the podcasts that was I was on before that. Since the beginning of the pandemic, right around um, March or April, but you know, we were Bob was um, furloughed, I was furloughed. Well, I'd broken my leg, so I wasn't going to work anyway. But we did more. We went out there more often. Prior to the pandemic, there was not a necessarily a century that we would hear things off and on. Um, and, you know, Fred can verify this because he came out yeah. with us and we would be out all night long and nothing would happen. <laughs> it yeah. was kind of a dud night, you know. Yes. Never heard really a century around us until everything's shut down. And then all of a sudden when when Bob and I started to go there again or started to go there more often, we heard this new thing that was happening, you know, this, what is this that is around us, you know, because we weren't used to that. Uh, and when this was happening, we had to really, you know, you, you, you start to think about, okay, what's different? Um, what could this be? And I think I had said that too. Uh, I think I had wrote, written a note to will um saying in, in maybe one of the podcasts i was like what what is happening here <laughs> i need I, it feels like there's a century you know there and it's something new and it just kind of hangs around us so this has been something new and this century again it it stays right there sometimes mm -hmm. it'll you know, cause a ruckus and, and like last night, there were a few things that it did that it normally didn't do that. Uh, a few other times prior to this, there was a huge rock that was thrown. I don't know if you remember when I told you that Bob and I were on and we told you there was a huge rock. It sounded like the size of a, you know, a, a softball. It was, it, it was huge. And we had gotten hit before, but it skidded off the road and popped up and hit the van. So it wasn't a direct hit. Last night, it definitely was a direct hit, and it was a bigger uh, rock. Now, as far as, like, Mark, when we got out at the end of the night, we got out of the car, and we collected everything, and we started talking. Um, I don't mean to get ahead of the game, but he had asked me, like he had said, he had asked me, are there any acorns here? Which I wanted to tell you, Mark, that I really appreciated that question because I thought I questioned that myself. When we started to get these these things thrown at us, um, you know, last year, when the century, I think that was a juvenile, to tell you the truth, but um, we were getting pinged all night long. And... I wanted to go back 
and I had to go back. I said, I not just I wanted to go back, I had to go back and find out if there were acorns falling from the tree. And I went back and I, I scoured that whole area, not a single acorn <laughs> in that whole entire area that we, that we occupy. And uh, it was kind of a relief, uh, you know, to know that, but at this, but at the same time, I'm wondering, you know, is it, is, are these things falling, but they're, they're not really falling and hitting our vehicle. It's coming horizontally. It's not coming from above us, you know, and bouncing off the roof of our car. It's coming horizontally. It's throwing, it's being thrown. And there's no doubt last night when, that yeah, there was another rock that was thrown too uh, toward the end of the night, and it was also a bigger rock. It wasn't as big as the softball size I'm talking about, but it was probably about the same size as the one that hit the van uh, at the beginning of the night. And when that was thrown into the the, it was thrown toward us. It wasn't. It didn't hit us, but it was t- thrown toward us, and. Bob, when, when we heard that, Bob's like, whoa. <laughs> and Mark heard it. And I I don't know. I, I think you said that you didn't hear it, Fred. But Mark no, heard it. And, the, sure and Bob and I both heard it. And it was a pretty good, it was a pretty good size rock. So that was pretty interesting, too. And I'm glad it didn't hit, you know, either of our vehicles at that point in time. But. But they were getting pinged. All oh, the yeah. rest of it. Now, this this was Mark's second time coming out with us. The first time that he came out with us was pretty. There, the century wasn't there, and right. we could. It was pretty quiet. We could hear. I think we heard maybe uh, coyotes. You know, once or twice, twice way off in the distance, but. There wasn't a whole lot going on. A few twig breaks, yeah. but I think that was more, you know, little critters. So I kind of felt bad that, you know, Mark came out and this is his first time coming out with us and it was such a dud. <laughs> but the second time last, you know, this past Saturday, I pretty much think that made up for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's the nature of the beast. Yes. It happens. <laughs> yeah. Norman, what about the uh, what? What about the whippoorwill and the whistle? That was pretty strange. Yeah, um, there was a pretty good loud whistle, whistle-like sound that we heard, pretty strong. And at again at the end of the night, um, there was a a whippoorwill sound, but it was not. It was nothing that I ever heard before. And how would you guys describe it? It was pretty loud. It was like a powerful one, not like a regular whipple wheel. It just sounded with a lot of power behind it. Yeah, this had to have been like a 50-pound whipper rail. Right, exactly. (laughs) That's what it sounded like. Yes, yes. Even a whistle also was powerful. Yeah, and it was about the same distance. Yes. Yes, it was. So there were some things that were going on. Um, we heard footfalls. 
we heard uh, we heard it it would break these branches that were you know bigger than normal not, not little like twigs but probably something you know with a little more girth and it would break these twigs and I swear they they there were some noises like I don't know if it was a rock knock or you know some kind of rock clacking um, there there was at one point there was a pop and we thought Bob, I thought it was probably a tongue pop and that was pretty loud and pretty close I don't know if, did you guys hear that you heard it I thought I did Mark said he thought he heard it yeah, I just, I, I, I kind of just started it off. Honestly, I didn't know what to really make of it. When you don't hear it very often, and again, the the uh, tongue popping just started. We had just heard it for the first time after researching this area for like, what, 15 years. This is like, or 14 years. This is the first time this year is the first time we ever heard tongue pop in, hmm. which is strange. And <clears throat> I think, and I, I, I know I mentioned this before, but Bob and I think that a group has moved into this area because it's everything was, was quiet and, you know, not very many um, campers were, were going there last year. Okay. Every, the, the, Planes, the planes had slowed down. The traffic was, you know, uh, uh, to a minimum. So we thought that maybe uh, a group had moved in, and that's why there was a sentry hanging around every time we got there, you know, watching us. And it watches us, and it, it stays there all night while we're there. So it's pretty. it's been pretty interesting. I still wish they would vocalize. I said to Bob when we were sitting yeah. in the car, if they want us out of here, when I said the one way probably to get us out of here is to scream at us. <laughs> because, dude, throwing those rocks are not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I want to just jump in real quick and, and kind of reiterate what you're saying, which is you can be in the presence of these creatures. They can be out there. They can be very near to you. You don't have a clue. I mean, there, there's absolutely, um, what, I, what I'm saying is no indication until something happens. You get a rock thrown at your car or something like that. I I just got to say that that mirrors the behavior that we hear of people that go out and you know, research these things or investigate them. Uh, it's probably the norm rather than the exception. And it, it totally is, you know, what I experienced was I knew that it was a total bust. There's nothing there. And then shortly thereafter, it just got very, very, very active. And there was nothing, no indication whatsoever. You don't hear anything. You don't see anything. So it's very consistent with uh, these creatures being in that area. Yeah, at one point, it sounded like this thing was coming through branches. And at, at the point that we heard that, Bob, Bob said, uh-oh, you know, because we've been bluff charged before. And 
It was very unnerving. The, the difference between what was happening when we heard kind of those, a, a few branches, like, like I said, it was coming through or pushing these branches away and it didn't, it didn't do it for very long. It only did it for a short few steps, but you could hear these branches, you know, being in leaves being pushed aside. Um, and, and then it just kind of stopped. It didn't do anything else. But when we heard it, Bob was like, "Uh Oh, now see Bob and I still have that in the back of our minds when we were bluff charged the only difference and then and then we we had that runner remember that fred oh it goes away ever <laughs> yeah Three thirty. we sat there from 11 o'clock at night until 3 30 in the morning and absolutely nothing was going on and then all of a sudden a freight train came through the woods wow yeah. that i wasn't fred was a little unnerved Bob was like, <laughs> Fred was cracking me up. I tried not to laugh, but it was really funny. Fred, I'm sorry. <laughs> Fred was sitting behind me in the spine. Oh my gosh. I don't know what you guys are going to do, but you better do something because it's right behind us. <laughs> so it was, it was funny because, you know, when we're out there listening, when we're listening, first of all, we're in the pitch black. All right, you can't see anything. And we have the H2s that are omnidirectional. You can't tell which direction this is coming in. You can tell if it's close or far. And sometimes you, you can zero in on a possible location. But the, when, you're, when this is happening, we couldn't tell where this running was coming from. We just could hear it getting closer. And your mind, when something like this happens, and like Fred was saying, I don't know what you guys are going to do, but you better do something, you know, because it's right behind us. And I, 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 I wasn't making fun of you, Fred. You know, I love you. No. Okay. <laughs> it was just funny because your your mind is telling you, right, when you're afraid that something is behind you. It's always behind you. It's never to the side of you. It's never in front of you. It's always behind you. So when he said that, I just kind of, I was like, we don't know. I'm thinking to myself, we don't know if it's behind us, but our brain wants to tell us, run, it's behind you. So it was kind of funny, but, you know, we don't know. We don't know. We heard it come crashing in and then it was walking toward us and we don't know in which direction it was coming. Last night, same thing. We know that the sentry is around us. We know the, that it's close by. When it was coming through the through the um, brush or whatever it was doing, it reminded of, us of that bluff charge. The only difference was the bluff charge was, um, how do I say it, premeditated. It was creeping up on us. It was sneaking up on us. It was very subtle. It was, and you could, because I could hear it. And I asked Bob a few times, you can't, did you hear that? There was snapping every now and again. You know, you'd hear the leaf litter move and the snap of a twig. And he, he wasn't hearing it as well as I was. And I, I said several times, okay, well, then it must be on my side because 
if you're not hearing it, I'm hearing it. And um, it wasn't a constant either. It was really, it's like if you're trying to sneak up on someone, you know, in the woods and you just methodically place your foot down and then wait and then place it down again, you know, the next one. And you're just kind of working your way toward whatever, you know, whatever you're, you're going toward. And this is what was happening during that bluff charge. And this is what unnerved Bob and I when that happened and every time when we went back the the time this the time after that happened we were really uh on guard and we were really alert uh, probably over alert um to all the sounds that were around us um after that happened because again this thing had a this thing had a mission and it was mm. trying it was making up on us and you know that was a little scary so anytime anything like that happens again you know bob's like "Uh oh is this going to happen again you know is is this happening <laughs> and every now and now even still since then if i hear anything that's subtle and and bob hears it we we kind of like say to each other this is way too familiar <laughs> and we hope this isn't going to happen again because we showed uh, Mark and Fred where that bluff charge stopped, where the where the creature stopped, and it was gosh, what would you say? Do you remember me telling you that, Fred and Mark, yeah, showing yeah. you where it's thirty feet away? Yeah. Would you yeah, guess yeah, me? Yeah, 20, yes. Yep. You say twenty. It was close. Feet, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that was it was very close. Yeah. yeah, it was very close. So that was, like I said, anything that happens like that now, um, we're like, okay, we just have to like wait it out and see what happens, basically. But I'm really interested, Mark. I mean, you were saying how unreal, because I didn't really get a chance to, I mean, we talked after, um, we got out of the car Saturday night and I think, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like this is kind of unreal? <laughs> Did you expect this to actually happen? I mean, I've been doing this for, for 16 years and I still can't wrap it around my brain that there's an actual creature out there throwing rocks at us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, I, having that op an open mind, definitely, you know, it's, it just allows for, I think, just the possibility, right? So when, when I'm thinking about what was going on, was I thinking, hey, maybe there's something out there? Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, like, is there really something out there? So it's kind of a... I don't know. It's like I say, it's an unreal situation. They're like, wow, this is happening, but what's what's causing this? Like, this shouldn't be happening, but what's causing this? Is, it, is there really something out there? Like, you know, and it's yeah, it makes it um, definitely, definitely was uh, real, which was unreal. <laughs> right, yeah. real and unreal at the same time. 
yes. Yeah. Because you, yeah. when you, when you, when you step back and you think about what could be doing this, which is what we're out there for, right? Um, we're thinking this. We're thinking this is Bigfoot. What else is out there? The the odds of somebody being out there, um, waiting for us to show up, and then stay stay there the entire night, throwing pebbles at us, is pretty unrealistic. So yes. when you when you then think about okay. There is, there is an actual Bigfoot out there, very close to us, yeah. throwing I rocks. To, yeah, I have to say that, like my 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 thought process is, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm definitely thinking it's definitely not a person, right? So next step, okay, if it's not a person, this is natural causes, okay. Now then I'm thinking of the acorns, you know, we're thinking along that lines, and just trying to. Get get the possibilities. Try to try to weed them out. Okay, is it this? Is it that? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's really just kind of boils down to uh, in this situation. Like, yeah, I, I couldn't see anything that would fall from the trees. You know, there's nothing there. There's no acorns. There's no pine cones. There's no, you know, these. It was just. You know, leaves don't make a, a metallic sound after they hit the car. I mean, it doesn't ping. You know, it's like fox. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And you you try to eliminate the possibilities or try to figure out mm-hmm. what that. Well, you know, Tom swears that we have eight foot, you know, raccoons <laughs> in our area. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's funny, right? right you guys, well, you mentioned that. I was just thinking because you know, there's a lot of pebble and rock throwing at you guys. And I think early on, I think like, what, a year or so ago when we were kind of first in communication with you guys, there was uh, smaller things. Wasn't there like a pine cone and and there were some acorns at one point? Is that right? Um, I don't know. There weren't any acorns. Um, at one point when I thought that Bob and I thought that there was a juvenile there, that was the, that was one of the nights that we went there and that was happening all night. And then at the end of the night, this, this thing just kind of started picking up, uh, leaf litter and, and twigs and stuff and just like throwing them. Right? It wasn't throwing them at the car, but it was throwing them it was throwing this, this, it's almost like you would scoop up a handful of, you know, whatever was on the forest floor and just kind of chuck it. And mm-hmm. so that was, it, it was almost like, it was like, I've had enough of this, you know, I'm just going to throw a little right. tantrum and throw these things at, you know, at you. Cause I've had enough, <laughs> you know, the next well, that, day that was a point I was going to make is I think these things are, they're agitated a little bit, a little bit on edge. And now they're showing, displeasure and then they want you to leave and i think that's why the rocks i don't know will what can you jump in and what are your thoughts on you know when you go from leaf litter you know the forest debris to rocks is that an escalation in your mind or 
we lost Will. Well, or... I was so Oh, no, sorry. I had to answer the phone. <laughs> oh. We get um, so the question gone. I had was, is there, is there kind of a uh, progression of escalation when they go from picking up the duff or whatever it is on the forest floor, the litter on the forest floor, to rocks, to bigger rocks? Typically, yeah. And what do you think that indicates? They want you out of there? Probably, or? yeah. You know, I would agree with you if they were getting more aggressive. It doesn't... I mean, if they wanted us out of there, and we've been there several times where... Uh, well, that bluff charge, for one. Um, but we've been there before where we've gotten there and only been there for about six minutes when it, there was a, a knock so loud right next to us. And remember I told you we heard that, first of all, it was like a Louisville was was wrapped around a tree. It was so loud and so crisp and so powerful um, and so close that there was un that was undeniable there was something there wanting us out of there at that moment and uh further out was another knock and then in between the two was another knock and you know bob's bob said i don't think that we should stay here <laughs> um we thought that maybe we came in on a hunt and they wanted us out of there we've been there before where they've wanted us out of there and had no no problem letting us know one of those things was that that juvenile that we had that light on for so long they let us know that that was enough you you've had that light on that you know infant for way too long and that's you know that's our limit we want you out of here and that's when that big tree branch came down and and took us out of our our, 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 you know, trance that we were in after watching this, um, you know, this juvenile. So we've been there when they've wanted us out of there. And I have a feeling that if they want us out of there, they are going to let us know they want us out of there. I have no doubt. And this isn't just, they're used to us. We go there all the time. They're used to our vehicle. The only, you know, and they, I feel like they're toying with us. They're not really, they don't show any kind of aggression or uh, they're upset with us for being there because again, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm only going by experience. So we don't get that threat from them that they want us out of there. Um, now, as far as those big rocks, you know, the big rock that was thrown, that, that could very well have been, you know, it's the end of the night, time for you guys to leave. But it, if it wanted to throw it at us and hit us, it definitely could do that. Anything. It wouldn't have to be that. It could be anything that they would throw at us and get us out. Um, and even, or, or take down a tree or a branch or something, you know, huge. I mean, does that... Am, am I that far off or, you know, <laughs> am I, am I just like pipe dreaming here? Maybe I'm wrong. Well, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, they're, they're doing something. I'm, I was just thinking, you know, they could, yeah, it's hard to say. You could, they could just uh, hit a threshold where they've had enough or, 
who knows? You know, maybe another group could come in. Uh, you wouldn't know whether it's a different group or the same group, and they may take things a little differently. So uh, it's really hard to tell. What, you know, what's it really is hard to tell what's going on. But it's they're doing yeah, something. You they're getting your attention. And they definitely are. They are. Um, but these little these little pebbles that they're pinging. You know, again, when Fred comes and he's in a car behind us, he's the one that gets pinged. <laughs> you know, it's always they're pinging his car with these little pebbles. Um, don't drive your don't Rick, drive your Chevy. That's all I get to say. <laughs> I'm gonna change. I'm gonna change cars. <laughs> I don't think it really matters because no, we took our cousin uh, too a few weeks ago and the same thing was happening to him. It's almost like a different, something different is there. And I don't think they, I don't think they, it's not like they don't necessarily like it. It's just different. And they're used to, again, they're used to our car being there. They know what it looks like. They know our voices because Bob and I are talking to each other all the time. Um, well, not constantly, but, you know, they know our, our voices. They, uh, but the car never changes. You know, we we go in the same vehicle and we're the same people and it never changes. So maybe it has something to do with that. The other thing that Bob brought up was maybe it had something to do with um, the game cam. Maybe they didn't like the game cam. But again... We've been there before without the game cam being up, and they've still thrown pebbles. So I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I think, and and well, you know that they can be aggressive. I mean, how many times have you heard? And I've heard. You know, Bob and I have heard that people get ushered out of the woods. People get uh, screamed at. You know, they have logs thrown at them. Um, this is ser- this is serious stuff. I wouldn't stay in the woods with that happening. By any means, I mean when that when that bluff charge happened, it, you know, it it it, it definitely uh, accomplished its mission. At that point, we left. Quick question: um, This area, this is a pretty active area. Is it connected to, or is it? maybe close to I'm, I'm just kind of going back in time a little bit to the minister when him and his son were hiking up i don't remember the name of the mountain but they're hiking up and they're coming down and they encountered one you remember that one that's that that story yeah so is this is this location i'm just kind of thinking i'm just wondering is it near that or was I'm just wondering if it could be a similar group or the same group? No, it's nowhere near. It isn't. Okay. All right. No. Yeah, that was a fascinating story as well. So, um, again, mm-hmm. this is just because of the area that you guys live in. It's not necessarily thought of by a lot of people as a Bigfoot area, but it actually – you guys – are routinely go out and get a lot of this activity. 
especially in the last year and a half. And, you know, again, Fred? Yes. I mean, you can tell him the stuff that's happened with us being together. Oh, my God. It's just it's endless. With the large tree breaks, <laughs> we've smelled one before. Uh, we tell, big, Fred, uh, tell, talk, talk a yes, little sir. bit of, about the uh, when you smelled one. How long did it last? What happened? Uh, give us some details on that. Um, well, we were sitting, we were sitting on, uh, on the bench there talking and stuff. And Norman and I looked at each other. And we said, "Do you smell that?" It was, it didn't last very long, but it was like very strong, like sewer type smell that we smelled. And then it just vanished. But it was, it was pretty strong for the time we had it. Was well, tell it? To prior- oh, I was just going to ask if there's a. Uh, I'm just going to try to eliminate stuff. Was there like a? Like a swamp or any any kind of a water source around that maybe you know a breeze came in and did that or there was a little stream behind where we were camping yes but we have we had been up there many 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 times the same exact location worse conditions as far as like you know um uh, hot kind of where a stream might smell a little funny but that night there was another couple with us um fred was that the night that ray brought you down uh, the, it, might the tree? It, it could have been it might, that yeah, it night we were yeah that night we were having a lot of activity this this uh, opening that we were in, we had a campfire going. It was um, another couple was with us. Another guy named Ray was with us. And I had my daughter's dog uh, that I was watching with us. And we were camping out for the night. Fred couldn't stay that night, but he stayed pretty, pretty well into the, the night. And we were, we were, uh, we had to have a, a gate key to get up to this, up on top of the mountain, um, to this area that we were staying. So no one else could get in there unless they had a key to this gate. So we went up there, the couple went into their tent, Ray and Fred and I were, and the dog were out sitting by the fire all night long something was going around us and <clears throat> i forgot who threw the apple uh one of us threw an apple out yeah I into think the wood yeah i think i would be okay. we had seen eye shine over in that area where the apple was and then all for a few hours we were hearing things going around us moving around us every now and again we'd hear it in one location and then another location and you know a different location but it was going around us in in like a semicircle pattern and fred and i were sitting you know in front of the fire and behind us there, there was woods behind us and that's where that that stream was in the back 
where uh, behind us, where that stream was, I found footprints there before. And I think I sent you a couple of pictures, uh, Will and Tom, about those footprints that I saw. And there were, um, there's not much behind there. There's a game trail that we usually take that we'll walk uh, on to go deeper into the woods. But that was that is what was happening all night. And when Fred and I were sitting there, all of a sudden we got this whiff of this stench. And like he said, it smelled like sewer. Um, no, like it, it was it was kind of hard to describe it. Kind of musty, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a weird smell. And it was coming, it just wafted up and we caught a, a you know, a, a breeze of it. And Fred said, did you smell that? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and it kind of came and, and then it went. And at one point during this, this whole night um, before Fred left, um, we were also sitting there and the dog, now this dog is... If I could clone this dog, I would make a hundred of her. She is the best dog. She She's so friendly and she hardly ever barks. There's a, not a whole lot that agitates her. Um, and you know when something's up, if she barks, something's up really, you know, drastic, something's up. But she hardly ever, you know, would bark at people or anything. Um so all of a sudden, we're sitting there over by where Fred had thrown that apple. Um, she all of a sudden, again, we're just sitting there talking in front of the fire. And all of a sudden, she stood up and barked right in that direction. You remember that, Fred? Yes, I remember that. Definitely. Yep. As soon as that happened, I I stood right up on I like I was like up on my feet in a flash because she never does that and she's looking over in that direction and just staring there and she kind of growled a little bit and then barked and then after the initial bark she barked again and then she just stood there and stared and Fred was up on his feet then Ray was up on his feet and we're all kind of standing there. What is, you know, what is she looking at? What's going on? And we're on high alert at this point. <clears throat> and I think that was before, was that before or after the smell? I can't remember. Uh, might've been before. Yeah, I think it was before. As I'm thinking back, I think it was before because then we settled back down again. And and we had heard a couple of branch breaks during that night, too. Didn't think, I mean, we heard them. We didn't think anything uh, much of it uh, other than it was a little bit further away from us. So, okay, something happened. Um, but then when Ray was going to bring... Uh, Fred down to his down the, down the mountain to his vehicle and on their way down there was a tree limb across the road 
and it must have been one of the ones that we heard at some point during the night. And Ray had to get out his um, Ray. He was he was actually uh, he was packing that night. And Fred, you should tell the story because you guys, the two of you, came upon this. Uh, oh, the thing this branch. the branch was, was the branch was enormous. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't old or it wasn't wet or anything like that. So to me, I thought something pull it down. And like you, like Mara said, Ray was packing. I was more afraid of Ray than I was the Squatch. If it was one. <laughs> But when you got out of the car, um, Ray said, watch my back. Right, right. He did. He had to get out his uh, chainsaw to get that branch out of the middle of the road. And he pretty much told Fred to watch his back while he was doing that. And Fred, and, and didn't you guys find out where that branch came from? Uh, I'm trying to remember if we did or not. I don't think it was too far away. I think it was definitely very close where it was. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it wasn't, I don't think it was very far. Yeah. So that was interesting because we had all that activity that night. Um, we ended up, Ray and I and, and the other couple ended up staying there that night. And I don't remember anything else happening during the night. And we stayed until the morning and we packed up and, you know, talked about the night and then, you know, pretty much left. But it was pretty interesting. Uh, it was a pretty interesting night. And again, Fred and I, you know, caught a whiff of that, that odor that was pretty, uh, pretty rank. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I wanted, uh, and I wasn't questioning that, what I want to do is eliminate so if you had a stream back there, typically I don't think of if the water's running, it's it's not stagnant. So you don't really think of that in terms of like, you know, maybe a stagnant pond or or some water that might have some bacteria in it. But um, so we're just eliminating that, and it just it it came and it went. Is that am I correct in understanding that? Yeah. And there is there is a part behind there that is muddy. Where the stream ends, and okay. it is muddy in that area. So have you ever smelled there. that? No, no. We've we've camped in that same exact location uh, many many times, and never. And like I said, in in conditions that you would think that uh, you know that smell would be there. And it never was. We never smelled that before. And and we've been up in that area and been up in that exact same place, um, like I said, many, many times. So we've never smelled anything like that. I, I don't think I've ever smelled anything like that any of the times that we've gone up there. No, definitely not. And we've camped up there a lot. And we've also... Uh, walk the trails, you know, way out along this this little stream, you know, um, and never, I've never smelled anything like that before or there. None of us have. And again, this was at nighttime, correct? When you when you smelled this? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is this is probably about one or two in the morning. Right. So you can't just go running over there and investigate to see what which and and actually the uh, smart money is you probably don't want to go over there and investigate it. I mean, we had, you know, I did have the flashlight, and when we caught that eye shine, that was in the same direction that the dog barked in, um, same direction where Fred threw that apple, but behind us, I don't, I mean, we took the flashlight out, but, you know, we didn't see anything, and not that we're going to, we might catch a glimpse of something if we're lucky. You know how these things are. They're either going to drop down to all fours or do the army crawl kind of thing or ditch behind a tree. You'll be lucky if you see it. Um, we On the occasions that we've seen anything, we've been lucky. But um, I don't know that it's so dense and, and there's so much foliage and, and brush back there. Unless we caught a glimpse of eye shine, we wouldn't have seen anything back there. No, they're, they're very adept at, at concealment. I, and that, that is really, I don't want to say it's kind of their trademark, but it's actually that that's, that's kind of their default position is, not allowing themselves to be seen and they i'm sure they know what ice eye shine is and i'm sure they know what uh what they can do not to be not to be seen so uh, well listen mark um glad to have you aboard and fred it's good to have you back norma Thank we you. always enjoy having you yes absolutely so you guys have got to come back on go back out there and um when you get some updates, we want to hear from you. It's always, uh, Will and I talk about it. We, we really do enjoy when we hear from you. So um, do you, um, before we wrap up, do you guys have any questions for us? Well, I just want to know why they keep pinging my car. Right? <laughs> we want to know that. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, the funny uh, thing, the funny thing is when we got out of the car at about 4 30 in the morning everything went quiet all four of us were out there just before sunrise and and i don't know mark i thought i thought i thought i saw you like kind of look over your shoulder a few times yeah definitely yes yeah it's just thought i heard something i don't have the greatest hearing so all my my musician days. Uh, every time, uh, just just it was like a feeling. I just kept looking behind me, looking looking behind me. It's like just a feeling. I, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm picking up something, hearing something, and I'm just constantly was looking over. It, yeah, it seemed like you were. I mean, we had just gone through a whole night of of all of this stuff, and then we get out. You know. Uh, uh, and in in like a circle talking to each other in the dark wondering if this thing is still around us um mm -hmm. but everything went quiet we didn't hear anything there were no pebbles thrown at that point uh sun was starting to come up you know that it was starting to get lighter the birds were starting to sing and but nothing 
And I, I don't know if you remember, Mark, but I'm out there. Okay, come on, throw a rock now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why are you throwing a rock now? Come on, bring it. <laughs> yeah, that's nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. Not even, not even movement, you know? So where's the thing going? Where is it? Yeah. All right, guys, listen, point. we're, we're just about out of time. Um, Thanks again, you know, like Tom said, and uh, to our listeners out there, be sure to send us any questions you have, you know, for the Q&As when we do them, and uh, stay tuned for the next segment. Welcome. This is a series of stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by Jim Sower. Story number one, Australia, Bigfoot spotted in bush near Sydney, April 15, 2009. Australian News, April 2009, two backpackers on a year-long trip around Australia got the fright of their life last week while they were out trekking in the bushland in the vicinity of the township of Lura, not far from the well-known Katoomba landmark, the Three Sisters. It was early evening, and by the ladies' own admission, it was a bit late to be by themselves in the bush. Ingrid Schoen, 23, of Germany, and Addie Hansen, 22, of France, decided to head back into town when they heard the breaking of branches and loud footsteps heading towards them. Ingrid turned on her torch to light the track in front of them, and at this point they both claimed to have seen what they now describe as Bigfoot charge away into the distance. Admittedly, we did not get a close look, but we think that what we saw looked like the American Bigfoot, basically covered in hair and about two meters tall. It definitely had no clothes on and was not human. Ingrid told all-news web reporter Jaden Cassidy, we were petrified and almost lost our way back in our nervous state, Ingrid commented. The Blue Mountains is believed to be the home of a creature known as the Yowie, basically Australia's version of Bigfoot or the Yeti. There have been many recent sightings there. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, local Aboriginal tribes were certain of its existence. Aboriginal communities still living in the Blue Mountains, along with some other locals, continue to believe that the Yowie might be out there in the vast expanses of Australia's Great Dividing Range. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. BBC's Online. So Weird, Lionel's Guide. The Ape Type. They're all big, they're all hairy, they're all colossal cocktails of man, ape, bear, and occasionally goat, but they're all over the world. Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America, Yaren in China, Nguoi Rung in Vietnam, and the Yawe in Australia. Most of the time they're more frightened by the spotters, but they're not always harmless. An adventurer named Bauman was working as a trapper with a friend in the Wisdom River area in Montana. One night, when Bauman got back to camp, he found his friend dead. 
There were huge bite marks on the body, and the man's neck had been snapped by something with far more than normal human strength. A few days before the tragedy, they had both seen a strange humanoid creature, which they reckoned was about seven feet tall. And this story was reported by President Roosevelt, so it must be true. American presidents don't lie, do they? In 1924, Al Ostman claimed to have been abducted by a whole tribe of Sasquatch. He was asleep in his sleeping bag when one of them picked him up like a rag doll and carried him away. As the creatures made no attempt to harm him, Ostman, who always kept a loaded rifle by his side when he was out alone in the wilds, did not wish to harm them. He finally got away by giving snuff to their leader and running away while the Sasquatch chief was sneezing uncontrollably. Many disturbing reports of the Yeti, or abominable snowman, a close cousin to Sasquatch and Bigfoot, have come in over the years from the Himalayas. In 1974, on a plateau 14,000 feet up near Mount Everest, 19-year-old Lakpa Sherpani was knocked unconscious as she tried unsuccessfully to defend her yaks from a yeti which killed several of them by twisting their horns until their necks were broken. This story comes to us from BBC Online. The end of story number two. Story number three, Alaska Magazine, September 1998, volume 64, number seven, Nathan, the Brushman, by Velma Wallace. Sasquatch, or something like it, appears in the legends of the northern Athabascan Gwich'in people as Nathan, the Brushman. Is he a myth, a monster, or a lonely man? The Natan was held in fear and admiration, although none could swear he ever actually saw one. If someone dared say that they did, people laughed, yet some believed. It is said that the Natan, also called brushmen, were men who were ostracized from the group for disobeying tribal rules. The rules of the wandering Gwich'in bands were simple and stern because survival was their main concern. The rules helped the people to survive their harsh environment, but they also were social requirements meant to keep peace. Some men, and occasionally women, did not abide by the rules, so the band leaders would ask the person to leave. The condemned person usually tried to prove he could survive without the group, but isolation taught otherwise. Physically, survival was possible. Emotionally, the human craved companionship. The rejected person would find himself slipping into the guise of a Natan. He would hover behind bushes, spying on people. If he became lonely, he tried to kidnap a woman and sometimes succeeded. Others saw brushmen as non-human, but with human appearances and magical powers. For instance, the brushman possesses the ability to use mind power to lull you to sleep and then steal your loved one. Even after contact with Western culture, the Gwich'in people believe that the brushman still exists. In the late 1800s, an infant was said to have been stolen by a Natan and later returned. Although the Natan was feared, he also was romanticized. As a teenager, my mother often wished that she were stolen by a Natan. 
My husband told of a time when he hunted above the mountains in Chandelar country, and large, dark, and dressed in skins, uh, this thing appeared from the woods and knelt down to drink water from a stream. Geoffrey called out to him, wanting to believe he was just another hunter. The startled man looked up and then ran away. Geoffrey told others, and they laughed, for what was the typical response to anyone who said that they saw a Nathan? Despite people's skepticism, not long ago a sensible couple traveling down the Porcupine River spotted a man walking alongside the beach. When he heard their motor, the man disappeared into the willows. The couple searched the area, but found only moccasin tracks. Later that fall, in Fort Yukon, meat and fish that hung on drying racks were missing. People said it couldn't have been dogs because there would have been tracks, and camp robbers, gray jays, blue jays, and stellar jays, always leave a mess. Again, even in modern times, the myth of the brush man sends excitement through the heart of small Alaskan communities. Perhaps the spirits of those long ostracized and rebellious individuals still do roam the land, searching for food and companionship. Copyright, Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. That is the end of story number three. The Legend of Ohio's Orange-Eyed Creature, 1959. Old Orange Eyes was allegedly an 11-foot-tall, 1,000-pound Bigfoot creature that is said to live in central Ohio, on a lonely road called Lover's Lane, where it stalked teenagers. The Orange Eyes creature first gained notice on March 28, 1959, when three teenagers observed a huge, hairy, orange monster rise from a ground fog at Charles Mill Reservoir, near Mansfield. Then, four years later, the beast appeared again, and this time it was witnessed by several people. Scientists were not sure where this creature lived, but it is assumed that the beast might have lived in a tunnel in Cleveland's Riverside, where it lived in peace for more than 25 years. Then, suddenly, in the 1940s and 1960s, highway construction destroyed the tunnel that Orange Eyes was alleged to be living in forcing the creature to live in a stretch of forest behind the Cleveland Zoo. Finally, a group of teenagers invaded the creature's habitat on April 22, 1968, and chased the creature armed with baseball bats, flashlights, and ropes, and went into the forest to try to capture and kill the creature, but they found no sign of the beast. June 1991, Old Orange Eyes appeared again, and this time the bees ran past two people fishing near Willis Creek, scaring the daylights out of them before disappearing. It was said the way to find this creature was on Ruggles Road near Blue Ridge, and if the creature was there, it would appear curious. Witnesses of the orange-eyed creature say that there is no monster, just some crazy hermit or trademark feature by nailing two round orange bike reflectors to a stick, or teenagers using Christmas tree lights, flashlights, to frighten one another. Courtesy, Andy Ramirez, Saturday, June 23, 2001, 10.38 a.m. This sounds like an 
urban legend, and it may also remind you of the Big Head Report from Richland County, Ohio, Vintage, 1978. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Biddeford, York County, Maine, 1951. Suddenly, there he was, less than 15 feet in front of me. I am a 73-year-old man, and when I was 13 years old, I was on a holiday with my parents in Biddeford, Maine. It was a sunny, chilly day in April. I told my parents I was going for a walk along an estuary leading out to the ocean. When I came close to the flowing, chilly water, I saw a winding stream with sandbanks rising five feet in front of me. As I climbed up on one bank to look at the water a few feet in front of me, I saw a figure floating on his back, coming in with the tide. I'd say we spotted each other at about the same time, so I had just stepped up onto this dune from the land side. It was four or five steps, and I was on top of the dune, looked down at the water, and there he was, right in front of me. I can easily think about that moment, and again, I had no idea what I was looking at. I could see him so clearly, even his hairs as they swirled around his body. Well, mind you, at this time of my life, I had never heard of Yetis, Bigfoot, or never read about them. I never knew they existed in my thirteen years of age. Uh, this figure had the shape of a man with grayish hair and a hairless, pinkish to reddish face with no hair on it. Although I had read about Bigfoot through those years, I never put the two together. I guess one reason was that this guy had grayish-white hair, and I guess I didn't really think he was a Bigfoot. This guy had no breasts that I could see. Only while reading about Bigfoot recently did I notice that an occasional you'd see a whitish-gray one that would appear. So I got excited, and I had to write about it. The rest of his body had hair which moved as the water washed around him. He was on his back and floating in head first. He was no more than twelve to fifteen feet from me. I didn't move one bit as I gazed at him. His arms were to his side, and he lay motionless, but the incoming water was moving him along this creek at about four miles an hour. His body was barely awash, meaning that he was floating on top of the water with about half an inch of water covering his body, except for his pinkish, reddish face, which floated out of the water, I'd say from the front of where his ears should be to the front of his face. His nose, eyes, and mouth were out of the water. His facial skin looked wrinkly, not a lot, but he had mostly deep wrinkles on his face. Another thing about his face, the skin was bare, not even a whisker, no hair at all on his face. One more thing, the amount of his facial reddishness was like a sunburnt man. He showed no facial expression. Only his eyes moved over to me, and that was a little scary to me, but I stood there and stared back at him. I don't think I shared any expression. About the hair, it was about six to eight inches long and loosely floated around his body. It looked like it was the consistency or thickness of a golden retriever dog not thick and matted like other Bigfoot reports that I've read. 
I did notice his knees, hairy, slightly bent up, and still just below the water. While I was watching him, I saw no effort to move his hands or arms. He easily drifted in without any body, arm, or hand movement that I noticed. I'll never forget how I felt during the brief time that I saw him. It was a deep soul connection that overcame me. I felt peaceful and calm during the whole time. I think I said this guy was about twelve feet from me, maybe even a little closer. I want to go back to where I saw him some day in hopes of connecting with him or his children. I thought it would be hard for me to walk down the little dune and follow him, and I don't think I would have since the dune led into the water, and I thought I would have gotten wet. Besides, I was so startled I could only look at him. Having never heard of these creatures, I ran through my mind every creature I had ever seen, and this didn't exist in my vocabulary of known animals. I was always interested in animals. I never ever saw anything like this. As I was gazing at him, he looked up at me, and we had an eye-to-eye -eye connection, which only lasted a few seconds. I can't say for sure, but I think his eyes were grayish-blue in color. He felt kindly to me, not startled, and I wasn't either. I will never forget this moment, and it's clear as a bell to me after sixty-three years. I ran home to my parents, who were in a house along the beach, and excitedly told them what I had seen. Well, they didn't pay much attention to me and thought I had seen a seal or a walrus or some other sea animal. I never thought much about it and kind of forgot it after many years. Later I began to hear and read about Bigfoot and never put what I saw together. The reason was that all reports I have read these creatures were never grayish-white, and they weren't very tall. This guy was only about six feet in length, no more, but finally, about ten years ago, I realized that this might have been a yeti. What else could it be? I feel a deep connection to the Bigfoot, and my experience will always be with me. I keep my sighting almost to myself, but though the, what I saw might help in some small way, I, uh, you know, tell others to help understand what's going on. You may publish this and use as you wish. You may use my first name, but please keep my contact information private. B.J. from Maine. Sunday, March 13th, 2011. That's the end of story number four. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is a collection of five stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Bigfoot watches snowmobilers in Gifford Pinchot National Forest. This happened, oh, roughly 1995 or so. The guy wasn't a researcher, just an ardent dyed-in-the-wool snowmobiler. This fellow's name was Garcia, and he lived in Beaverton, Oregon, an area near Portland. Seems he and some of his buddies were up in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest doing what snowmobilers do, playing chase, trying to ditch or lose your chasers. Garcia was way out in front of his pursuers, trying to lose them. 
He turned up a spur road into an untouched snow area, thinking his buddies would miss where he turned. Well, this spur only went about 200 yards into an old landing site, with the road ending right at the timber's edge. Garcia's plan was to go up into the old unit, get out of sight of the main road, make a big swing through the old unit, then when his buddies passed, he planned to come down and get in behind them before they noticed. Wrong. It didn't work out that way. When he tore up into the unit and started to make his turn at the old landing, standing at the end of the road, just outside the timber, was a large Bigfoot, watching him. Garcia panicked, and in his fright he flopped his snowmobile. In his panicked state, between trying to right his ride and watch his observer, who was just standing watching this scared human floundering around in the snow, it must have been quite a sight to behold. Anyway, when the Bigfoot had seen enough, it just turned and walked back into the timber, much to Garcia's relief. He finally got his snowmobile back onto its bottom side down and met up with his buddies and told them the story, which they checked out without Garcia. For his part, Garcia went back to the parking area, loaded up, went home and sold his outfit and moved back to California. After I heard about this from a neighbor of Garcia's, I told Peter Byrne, and at Peter B.'s request, I tried to get in contact with Garcia, but he was long gone, and where in California he went wasn't known. This guy was scared half out of his skin. His neighbor was a landscape contractor I knew, and he told me about Garcia's adventure a year or two after it happened. He said after Garcia got back, sold his outfit, and moved, he was never the same, and couldn't get out of the Northwest quick enough. Too bad more retransplant Californians don't have a similar experience. Maybe we could lose or slow down this rapid growth we're staggering under. LOL. Cliff Johnson, Oregon City. Oregon. Ole Jeep. Wednesday, January 18th, 2006. And that's the end of story number one. Story number two. A 1970s Sasquatch Story in Georgia by Wayne Ford, Oconee County, Georgia. Along the Flint River in the vicinity of the central Georgia city of Griffin is the location of one of Georgia's most publicized pieces of Sasquatch evidence, the cast of a track with dermal ridges that supposedly indicate the existence of an unknown primate. That 17.5-inch print was cast in 1997 by a sheriff's deputy. But 20 years earlier, and within a few miles of this place, a young teenager had a fleeting but frightening encounter with an animal that was out of the realm of anything he had considered existed. Today, Jeff Scott is trying to come to terms with what he saw that day on the banks of the Flint River. He searches through the vast amount of Bigfoot information available on the Internet, and he returned to the location of his sighting. He is no longer embarrassed by the fact that he saw something that is catalogued by the general public as strange or fanciful. 
Jeff Scott's search for answers began in 2008, during the time of a ballyhooed hoax in Georgia when two men, one a certified policeman, claimed on national TV that they had the body of a Bigfoot. It was a lie, but Scott says what he saw was real. Back in 2008, when they said they had a corpse of Bigfoot, you remember the hoax? I went back down there, he said, in July during the telephone interview from his home in Griffin. Based on what he has learned by studying reports, Scott, now 49, said he is certain he has found strong evidence of the creatures still in that area. Scott's personal sightings go back more than three decades. Me and my cousin were down on a river bank, he recalled. I was 17 years old when it happened, and I wasn't even thinking about Bigfoot back in those days. My cousin was down on the bank fishing, and I said, Russell, come on up. Let's go around this bend and fish here for a while. He didn't go. Lord knows I went up around the river bend and throwed my poles out, and I was sitting there by myself. I wasn't talking, just being extremely quiet when I heard something way off in the distance across from me. The river is real narrow up there, too, he said. As he sat fishing, Scott said the sound that he heard far off in the forest sounded like limbs popping. I didn't pay no attention to it, or, and it started getting louder, and I thought it must be a cow or something coming down to the river to get some water. He got closer and closer, and a fear came over me. I started hearing big, huge limbs snapping and popping. It was frightening. I knew right off the bat there ain't nobody in the world can make that kind of noise. Scott said he was alarmed and his sense of flight set in, but he sat still. He said the bushes and vines on the opposite side of the river were moving and he knew that whatever he had heard was near the river. About that time, that thing came out. With its arms, it parted the vines, and I saw it walking. It was just humongous how big it was. Solid black hair and shiny. I never saw its face. I saw it from the side. I saw its legs plain as day, arms and head, everything from the side. If I hollered at it, it would have instinctively turned and looked at me, but I didn't do that. I was so scared, he said. He got up hollering and running back to Russell. I'd never been so scared in my life, he said. Scott remembered he was in a near state of panic when he reached his cousin. I was shaking so bad. He tried to get me to my senses, I said. Man, we need to get the hell out of here, Scott said, adding. He saw the fear in my eyes. They left, and more than thirty years would pass before Scott had the desire to return to this location and stand where he had seen the creature. To this day, the only thing I regret about it is I was too scared to go back down there and see that devastation of limbs that thing had snapped. I know the footprints would have been there, he said. The sense of fear Scott experienced that day was profound. The fear overcame me that this thing could kill me, Mankind has never captured something like that. The fear in me was indescribable, he said. Today, Scott does not harbor that same fear that overcame him as a teenager. 
He doesn't believe these things, unknown creatures, will kill unnecessarily. He has gone to spots on the Flint River on a number of occasions to look and to listen. I'm trying not to carry a gun down there with me, but it's hard. I carry bear spray and a knife, he said, adding, I've only been back to that same spot where I saw it one time. He and his cousin returned at his request. I found the spot again right off the bat after 33 years. When I stood at the exact spot, I saw that thing. I'm serious as a heart attack. I felt as if something was watching me. He said he turned to his cousin as they stood on the river bank. Russell, you didn't see what I saw standing here 33 years ago. It was the scariest thing in my life, he said, adding, he believes me because he saw the fear in my eyes that day. Scott said he talked about this sighting to only a few people. Nobody knows what I saw, only a handful of people, he said. When he read about the casting of the footprint, now called Elkins Creek cast, he knew it was close to where he had had his sighting, and to him it was a confirmation that what he saw still roams those forests in the Flint River. Twenty years later, they took castings of a footprint, he said. And more than thirty years later, he wants to understand what he saw. Wayne Ford is a journalist in Georgia who is researching the mystery. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Adams County, Idaho. October 2009, and several other incidences in the same county. 2009 was the third year that I have been able to spend the whole hunting season in the mountains. I retired in October 2007. I pulled my camp trailer up at the end of September and set it up for 36 days of camping, hunting, and sitting around the campfire enjoying the outdoors. I spent a lot of time camping and hunting by myself, everyone else is still working, and riding my ATV on the few old logging roads that are still open to four-wheelers. At 12.24 a.m. on the seventh night, something woke me up and I sat up in bed. A minute or so later, the rear end of my camp trailer started rocking back and forth. All the stabilizer jacks were down, and the trailer was solid, so whatever it was that was pushing on my trailer was very strong. The fully loaded trailer weighed in at more than 5,500 pounds, and whatever was moving it was not making any noise while it rocked. My first thought was a bear, a really big bear. I grabbed my shotgun and put a shell in, and sat and waited for a few seconds. The trailer continued to rock, back and forth, so I grabbed the air horn that was sitting on the table and gave it several blasts. That did not stop it, so I got the keys to my truck and pushed the panic button, setting the horn blaring. This stopped whatever it was, and all was quiet for five minutes. I sat there with the shotgun in my hands, listening for any sound. There was no sound, just total quiet. I had convinced myself that it was just a bear when this god-awful sound came from the ridge behind the trailer. It started off like a whistle, 
turning into a horse whinny, and then going into a very loud howl and finished off with a growl. All of these sounds were run together with no pause in between them. It lasted maybe ten, fifteen seconds, and then all went quiet. Damnedest sound I ever heard scared the hell out of me. I got dressed and sat there in the dark the rest of the night, shotgun in hand. I have never had anything affect me like that before. After it was completely daylight, I went out to look at the back side of the trailer and to see if there were any tracks on the ground. There were not any dents in the trailer or any tracks on the ground. There should have been tracks because the ground was kind of soft and out of habit I had raked all the pine needles and forest duff away from the trailer leaving just dirt and grass. This happened on October 5th. 2009, at 12.24 a.m. Need to mention here that a 240-pound friend drove into my camp while I was still outside checking for tracks and looking for any damage to my trailer. He wanted to know what I was doing, so I told him the events of the past eight hours. I also went back inside and had him push on the trailer to see if he could rock it back and forth. The best he could do was to give it a jolt by throwing a shoulder into it. He could not make it rock in the smooth motion that had occurred the night before. This particular event is what finally gave me the incentive to file a report, and largely because it is the first time I cannot affix any logical, rational explanation that would allow me to forget that it happened. There have been seven or so other odd happenings over the past 12 to 14 years that have taken place within a six-mile stretch of this road involving six people. Two of those events involved the friend I mentioned earlier with both ending in him being chased off the mountain. Event one. The first happened when he was walking out on an old skid road very late in the day after an afternoon deer hunt. He said he could hear something keeping pace with him higher up on the hill, and it followed him for about a mile or so, making sounds that he had never heard before. Event number two. The second time was five to six years later, and in the summer he had just finished cutting up a truckload of firewood and was taking a breather before loading it when he heard the same sound as before. The sound was quite a ways off, but kept getting closer, so this time he decided that he would sit tight and see exactly what it was. He had a three fifty seven Magnum revolver with him, and he just stood there waiting. After some time of listening to this sound, and it was getting closer and closer, he again let discretion be the better part of valor and jumped in his truck and left, leaving the wood he had just cut laying there on the ground. Event number three. An old hunting partner of his was chased back into his camp trailer early one morning by something that made threatening sounds toward him in the dark. He said he had never heard anything like that before, and he is also a lifelong hunter. Event four. An associate that worked on one of our mills said his wife saw a tall, strange-looking thing walking towards their campsite while he was out hunting. It turned and went into the forest before she could get a really good look at the face, but she said it was very tall and was dark in color from head to foot and not carrying a rifle.
Event 5. My son said he saw several barefoot human-looking tracks, but they were large, and they were along the trail on the top of the ridge that overlooked the area where my friend left the truck. Event 5. My son said he saw several footprints, human-looking ones, but large footprints along the trail of the top of the ridge that overlooked the area where my friend had left the truckload of firewood on the ground. Event 6. My brother and I were camped on a point just a few miles down the road from this year's incident back in 1997 or 98. It was just after dark, and we were sitting by the campfire when across the creek and way up the ridge we heard this god-awful scream-slash-howl. It was so loud that it felt like it shook my shirt sleeves. After a few minutes of trying to rationalize what could have made that sound and not coming up with anything, he left and went into his trailer for the night. I put the fire to bed, and then I went into my trailer for the night. No brave people here, either. Keep in mind that we have been lifelong hunters, and he was in his sixties then, and I was in my fifties. Event number seven. Two other occasions in previous years involved knocking or tapping on the side of my trailer. One happened at two o'clock in the morning, and a few years later it happened again at three o'clock in the morning. On both occasions, there were no other camps within a mile or two in either direction on this road. No other noise was heard other than the three or four raps on the side of the trailer on both those occasions. My campsites are well off the Forest Service Road, with the exception of one that's about 150 yards from the road. My best guess about the chronology of these events? Well, the first one, my friend walking out the skid road was mm, 96 to 97. Uh, second one, my the mill employee's wife was around 96 to 98. The third one, about my brother and me, was 97 to 98. The one about my son was 98 to 99. The fifth one, about friend's old hunting partner, I was about 2,000. The sixth event was my friend cutting wood. That was 2002. The seventh, knocking or rapping on my trailer at night at 2 o'clock and then again at 3 o'clock in the morning was 2005 and 2008. And the eighth, the one about the trailer rocking back and forth, that was 2009. Other incidences in the past 30 years of hunting in this area. One, very bad smell going out an old skid road before daylight. Nothing there when we're coming back out. This happened several times, and always in the same area of the skid road at the bottom of a draw where my brother and I heard the scream, howl, in 97 or 98. Two, small rocks were thrown at my son while we were sitting on the edge of our favorite ridge, two ridges past the end of the skid road mentioned above. Three, animal and bird sounds going in another skid road, and totally quiet when coming back out. This happened more than just once on this skid road. Number four, a stick structure we found that was built off of FRS number 624 on the side road. Number five, my son rolled a large rock down into a large bowl, five to seven hundred yards wide, just before dark, making a lot of noise intending to scare out an elk, but instead... A very tall, solid, dark figure stepped out from behind a tree across the bowl from us, 
and after a few seconds, step back behind the tree again. My son rolled another rock, and the figure stepped out again for a few seconds. It then headed off away from the road as it was getting dark, walking on two legs. I watched this thing through a small pair of binoculars, and it was uniform in color top to bottom and was not carrying a rifle. This happened 50 to 55 miles away from the area mentioned for all the other happenings. That's the end of story number three. Story number four. Albany County near Laramie, Wyoming, 2001. Snowy Range Mountains. I definitely want to share this with you. This was in the Snowy Mountain Range near Laramie, Wyoming, July of 2001 at about 9.30 a.m. Albany County, by the way. I've been on this website reading up on stories from all over the country that people have submitted of Bigfoot sightings that they've experienced. As I read them, I realize how shockingly close they are to what I saw. When I was a sophomore in high school, my mom was dating a man named Scott. He had a four-wheeler, and we'd always go camping. We went to the Snowy Range Mountain Range near Laramie, Wyoming, and camped up there one weekend. Scott and his buddies were dredging for gold, and my buddy Keith and I, along with my brother, were riding the four-wheeler around having a good time. I went out on a solo run, and that's when I experienced my sighting. Now, what you have to understand is the area we were in was pretty hard to get lost in. A huge, incredibly wide dirt road that led from our camp to a massive meadow that led down off the mountain. In the other direction, about 100 yards or so down the dirt road, was the creek in which the guys were dredging. The main road leads you everywhere. As I rode past the creek, I saw another dirt road leading into the woods. I figured I'd explore a little, so I went in there. As I followed the road, I could see a few deer skipping around. The area was full of trees, but plenty of sunlight got through, and the area was actually very pleasant. Eventually, the road narrowed and gradually disappeared, and the trees became closer together. The area off in that direction was clearly still rather unexplored, and I didn't feel like getting lost in there. As I turned the four-wheeler around, I was met with an incredible sight. A pretty small black bear had wandered out of the woods and walked right up to me. I braced myself for the worst, but instead, the poor guy was shaking. He came right up to me and pressed his body up against the four-wheeler. He didn't look like he was very old. I was genuinely worried about him when, all of a sudden, what I figured to be his mother charged out of the woods about twenty feet to my left. She ran right up to me, and the young bear looked at me and quickly nudged the little bear away from me. She looked at me again, and there was something about the look in her eyes. They wandered off, and I sat there wondering what the heck just happened. I swear I'm not making this up. Why didn't the mother bear attack me? Why was the mother bear not acting defensive around her cub? And then I heard it. It was the most terrifying scream I've ever heard. It started low, like a really deep lion's roar, as it grew in intensity, 
It sounded like a lion mixed with a low bass sound that oscillated a bit. The louder it got, it became higher pitched until it sounded like a woman screaming in absolute terror. It continued for about six seconds or so. It sounded like a woman was being slaughtered out in those woods, but yet it had an inhuman shriek to it as well. I wasted no time in getting out of that area. I rode down the main road, and I passed the guys that were in the creek. I stopped and just looked at them. They were standing there looking around and asked me if I was messing around making that scream. I said I wasn't, and then we saw the two black bears crossing the creek a little ways down. You could tell they were in a hurry. The guy shrugged and went back to dredging. I rode down the main road and out into the clearing that led out of the mountain. I saw a group of cars heading in. They disappeared into the woods to presumably go make camp somewhere. Brave souls. I rode for a bit, then turned around to head back to camp. As I approached the tree line, I saw something move out of the corner of my eye. I looked to my right, toward the area of unexplored woods that I'd been in. There was an area of trees at the base of an incredibly steep peak, and the trees went up as far as the eye could see. I spotted a figure within those trees, and it was just standing there looking at me. All I could really make out was that it was black or dark brown, standing on two feet. It turned and began striding up the summit with almost no effort at all. You could actually hear the crashing of trees and shrubbery as it made its way up the mountain. I rode back to camp in a hurry. As I rode back, I could hear another scream far in the distance, almost as if something were answering the first scream I heard. Since it was our last day on the mountain, the guys had packed in their gear and we were leaving. I was admittedly relieved that we were getting out of there. Scott pulled me aside once I got back to camp and asked me if that I heard those screams. I told him I had, and then I told him about those bears and what I saw going up the mountain. He was skeptical, but told me that we shouldn't tell my mom or my little brother since they'd most likely just wig out. We took the four-wheeler out to the meadow, and I showed Scott the area in which I saw the thing. There was no bad smell, which are sometimes reported with Bigfoot sightings. There were full-grown trees ripped right out of the ground. Branches, foliage, and leaf debris was everywhere. The smell of fresh pine and sap was pretty strong. We couldn't figure out what the heck could have done that, but it looked like a tornado went through there, ripping up the place. We left that day, and we never told anyone else about it. The other guys that went with us to the dredge had heard the screams and acknowledged that something wasn't right. They wanted to leave it at that, though. I haven't been back there since, but I wouldn't mind getting a group together and heading up that way again to explore a bit. My experience is so similar to the ones on this website, BigfootEncounters.com, that I visited that it's pretty remarkable. However, I'm still unsure of what I saw, and I can't really make a conclusive claim that I, in fact, did see a Bigfoot. I do believe that they most likely exist, but I'm still unsure. I'm not very experienced with the outdoors. The screams I heard could have been anything, really. I do think it's a pretty big coincidence that this matches up with other experiences. 
but that doesn't mean much. I could have seen a bear or something standing on its hind legs, but it didn't look like a bear. It looked like a hairy man, and it was huge. But I'm both a believer and a skeptic, so I can't really say for sure what it was. It all still pretty insane experience, though. One I'll never forget. My name is Zach, and I was the only witness. I'm glad this site exists, because up till now I felt pretty alone. I'm glad others have experienced the same kind of phenomena. It helps me deal with it for sure. Zach, December 15th, 2009. That's the end of story number four. Story number five, an old Bob Titmus story. Robert Merle Titmus, December 24th, 1918, through November 15th, 1997. Age, 79. By Larry Batson. In the last years of Bob Titmus's life, I occasionally talked to him on the phone when he was up to it. One day he told me about being up in the Bluff Creek area tracking Bigfoot collecting hair samples, looking for footprints or whatever he could find. He related this incident, which occurred about a year or two before the Patterson-Gimlin footage had been filmed. Titmus was sure his memory was starting to fail him, but this event he remembered perfectly. He was deep in the back country of Bluff Creek, by himself, one afternoon, and at the time he was certain there was a Sasquatch or Sasquatches very close by the evidence that he was finding. He was so involved and so focused that he lost track of the time and the sun was starting to go down. The density of the forest overcame him. He suddenly realized that the day was getting too dark to find his way back to his main campsite. Titmus realized that he was going to have to stay put until morning because trying to find his way out in the darkness would be dangerous and foolish. The nights can be quite cold, and he really was not wearing enough clothing to just lie in the woods and try to sleep, so he began to dig a pit for him to sleep in. After he finished digging his bed, he laid in it and started covering himself with a thick layer of leaves, branches, and pine needles. After he finished, the only part of him that was exposed was a small area around his face, he was quite comfortable, sufficiently warm enough, and he had no problem going to sleep. Titmus guessed that the time was probably around 1 a.m., when he was startled awake by the sound of something moving through the forest nearby, and it seemed from the sounds to be heading in his direction. He could hear the sound of heavy footsteps crashing methodically through the forest brush, breaking limbs and so forth. At first he thought that it was a bear, but it wasn't long before he realized it was too noisy for a bear. It came closer and closer, and then it stopped. Titmus could hear the thing breathing. Not just breathing, but also <laughs> sniffing the air like it was trying to pick up a scent, and now he realized that it had indeed picked up his scent, but could not figure out where he was. With just his face exposed, Titmus was very well concealed from what he came to understand had to be a Sasquatch. All of a sudden, it started screaming, 
breaking branches and throwing rocks in his direction. Titmus held very still, very quiet. The Sasquatch started moving around, pacing back and forth through the forest, continuing to scream, bellow, and throw debris. Titmus related that this behavior continued until about an hour before daybreak. Then, as the sun began to rise and light trickled through the forest canopy, the creature went away, and the forest fell silent again. He pulled himself out of his makeshift bed in the ground and started to look around, investigating the entire area. He walked in the direction of where the ruckus had come from, and he could not believe his eyes. It looked like a bulldozer had gone through the forest. Saplings had been pulled out of the ground, larger trees pushed over, broken, or snapped in two. There were branches covered with hair samples, and the ground was littered with footsteps. It was no bear. In later years, Titmus went back to Bluff Creek shortly after the Patterson footage had been filmed uh, in October of 1967, and he saw the footprints on the sandbar the film subject had left, and he was certain that this was the same Sasquatch that he encountered the night that he slept in the pit in the wilds of Bluff Creek. A key figure in Sasquatch Bigfoot investigation for nearly 40 years, Titmus died in Chilliwack, British Columbia, July 1, 1997, following a heart attack that he had suffered a few days before at his home in Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. He was 78. This is the end of the collection of five stories. Thank you for listening. Talawa Indian Stories, Del Norte County, California, 1800s. The Talawa Indians inhabited the far northwestern parts of northern California, just below what is now the Oregon border. For more on the Talawa, here is a good page. Catherine's Recollections Anne and Red Cody recently met and interviewed a woman named Catherine, who was of Tolowa Indian heritage. Her mother was Tolowa, father an Irish immigrant logger. She is now 72 and recalls many legends about Bigfoot, though in no particular order. The following are her recollections about the story she heard growing up in Northern California. I remember my grandfather telling stories of a large, hair-covered man-creature. As a young boy, he was hunting and felt like he was not alone. He sat still near a bush and waited to see who might be following him. Not thirty feet away was a tall, muscular, hair-covered creature standing behind a tree. He watched it for a few minutes until it turned and walked away up the hill. He told his father about this, and his father said that they were a quiet people who shared the bounty of the forests and rivers with the Indians. Many had seen, but it was considered evil to kill one, as they had never harmed the Indians. In the evenings, they could be heard screaming in the woods, communicating with each other. My brother, Joe, ten years my junior, saw what appeared to be a mother with a youngster in tow. The infant was playing with a stick near the creek, while the mother stood stock still and watched. When she noticed my brother across the creek, she grabbed the young one by the shoulder, pulled him in front of her, and she herded him into the trees. She looked back a few times to see if Joe was following. 
He was amazed at how quiet and stealthy they were. The mother was dark and uniform in color, while the young one was more mottled, with lighter fur on the torso and shoulders. Her grandfather told this story, and she would put the year in the 1880s. In the morning, our parents gathered all the family to clean and fillet salmon from the catch. We would prepare the fish for smoking. We left the entrails for the animals and birds to eat. After a day of work, we packed up the fillets and started on the walk back to the fire area. I left my knife on the bank and returned to fetch it. As I approached the cleaning area, I saw the big, hairy man squatting down and eating the fish entrails. When he saw me, he stood and roared, perhaps to scare me. He did not want to share his meal. I ran back and told my mother, and she said I should never venture out alone. We returned in an hour, and the huge pile of entrails was gone. There were more entrails left there than a bunch of raccoons or other scavengers could have taken that fast. Again from Grandfather. We would see him once in a while, mostly in the evenings just after the sun would go down, sometimes in the very early morning. They knew we were there, but would not harm us. They would go out in darkness so they would not have to be seen by people. They would sometimes come near the fire at night, but stay just out of sight. Your nose would tell you they were near, as they smelled like rotted meat. My father once saw two big creatures standing on opposite sides of a small clearing, yelling and throwing sticks. He thinks they were fighting for the space, or perhaps for food. He saw them many times, but was never afraid. They would sometimes take his food at night, but they would never hurt people. When my brother was a baby, our mother left him in a hammock when she went for water. She came back and a creature was very near him, smelling him, but it did not touch him. It knew it was a harmless baby, but was just curious. It frightened our mother, but the creature went up the hill when she approached. If Red finds the rest of his notes, I'll send them along. Best wishes, Anne Rowling's Cody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.